Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of August 22nd, 2023. If it looks like I'm just a floating head, it's because I have a green shirt on. Go <laughs> yeah. Green screen. Uh, but yeah, we're going to go with it. So I, I look like um, the Swami from Pee Wee's Playhouse. May he rest in peace. I'm just a, a floating head. So. Yeah, anyway. it looks cool. It looks cool. You know, I, yeah. I, if I'd have known, we could have went with a blue screen. If you run out of a, you know, it, we could always do that. <laughs> then I'd be uh, a floating head. Yeah, it's it's happened. Yeah, it happened sometimes with black shirts too. So anyway, last week of uh, Night Terrors, like regular issues, there's only the final issue, Night Terrors and Night's End, <clears> which I guess with the way Night Terrors has been going, I could see how they could wrap it up in one issue. Um but then again, at the same time, I do I feel a little bit like uh, War for Earth three, and a little bit like I did after last the Lazarus Rain event or Lazarus Planet event, I guess. Um, which is kind of like what was the point, you know? Like, other than I suppose introducing a new villain in Insomnia as a big yeah. bad who can come back around and what have you. Um, but I don't know. Maybe because I, in a way, I compare him a little bit to the villain uh, Nightmare over on the Marvel side of things, who has a similar power set to to what Insomnia has, and he's never really been somebody that I would consider a big bad. Um, although I think at one time Marvel was trying to to make him or suggesting he was as powerful as Mephisto, but even Mephisto is, you know, it's tough to call him a big bad. He's powerful enough. But I don't know. He's not in that same league with like Thanos or Galactus or um, someone like that. So yeah. Uh, anyway, I thought it was an overall a solid week. Once again, the non Night Terrors books vastly outshine the Night Terrors books in my mind. So yeah, uh, I don't know. How'd you feel about the week, Rocky? Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. There was one Night Terrors issue that stood out for me above the rest of the Night Terrors. But the non, you know, uh, the non Night Terrors comics were were much better, more satisfying for me, and and I I enjoyed them overall because Night Terrors just seems like, for the most part, uh, a redundancy, and that's you know I really really if the if the concept was better and more original and more inspiring to the writers maybe, but I felt that overall Night Terrors has I I already know it's been a disappointment because I well. I know how it ends, <laughs> but and I'm, I can't wait till it ends so we can move on. Uh, but there are some positive aspects in Night Terrors, and, and we'll get to it. And I think you and I have talked about those those issues that uh, I think that I think that every writer with Night Terrors and all the tie-ins were, were they were all handed a lemon, and only a couple of them made lemonade out of it, you know, to make it pal- palatable for us readers. But. Yeah, and I, I will say if it's someone's first DC event, it is very new reader friendly. And it does give a lot of context. We've yeah. talked about it. it. Gives a lot of context into who these characters are, what their anxieties are. I won't say fears because we've been told by Joshua Williamson it's more about anxieties and stresses. Um, and I definitely get that. You feel that throughout. So, uh, well, let's go ahead and dive into Night Terrors number four, written by Joshua Williamson. Art is by Giuseppe Camincoli, Stefano Nessi, and Casper Wingard. Colors by Frank Martin. And Casper Wingard, and then letters by Troy Petrie. So, narrated by Deadman, as it has been throughout, with him sort of breaking the fourth wall and talking to us. Deadman in the body of Batman, as he has been throughout. Wesley Dodds and Damien 
go into Arkham Tower. They're going to confront um, Insomnia in his, I guess we'll say his civilian guys. They know his body is still there. They know he's he's running this mission or running this event or however you want to call it. Uh, he's controlling things, pulling the puppet strings, moving the pieces around on the game board from Goth, from uh, Arkham Tower, right? He's there, he's asleep. Um, that's manifesting his powers. And so as they get closer, it becomes clear that the closer they get to Insomnia, kind of the more powerful he is. Even Damien, who's been able to be awake this whole time, you know, trained his body and what have you, he almost succumbs to, to falling asleep as they're going up the stairs to um, the room where Insomnia is resting. Um, we actually learn um, Insomnia's name, Christopher Lucas. And no surprise at all, as I said at the very beginning, wife and kids killed by the Justice League. And this guy was a Justice League fan, for lack of a better term, right? Like he, he really believed in the Justice League. Uh, his son had on a Flash t-shirt the day he died. Christopher Lucas himself is wearing a Justice League shirt. It's the logo from the Scott Snyder run. And uh, we're told that um, by Christopher Lucas himself, he said, the Justice League is fighting some kind of disaster down the street, some monster. We've been told to evacuate, but I believe in the Justice League. I know they'll save the day, and then the building explodes. And he lives, but as I suspected, as I stated, his wife, his son, his daughter, his children are dead. Right. And he blames Justice League. Now, you were told to evacuate, dude. Like, we, we know that this is going to make sense, but, you know, grief and trauma and what have you often don't make sense. You know, I'm not going to totally put the blame on this guy. He's gone through something traumatic and horrible, even if it's cliche and predictable. Uh, and even if it was sort of through his own fault of not evacuating like he was supposed to. But this is the event that triggered it. This is what he, he wants. And what we find out is he's been pulling the strings all along. He probably had the feeling that he wasn't going to be able to locate the Nightmare Stone. So he, he sort of manipulated events so that Dead Man or – I mean, he, he probably didn't know specifically be Dead Man, but that somebody else would find the Nightmare Stone, use it on him, uh, or attempt to use it on him in his nightmare. But what he does is he, he kills himself in his nightmare. He says, uh, didn't you forget the rules of this game? Uh if you die in nightmares, you die in, in real life. So he kills himself in the dream, which is pretty dark <laughs> way to go from Joshua Wimson. And what that does is it, it makes all the nightmares real, right? Like all the terrible things that the people that are still asleep, we know most of the heroes are awake at this point. They've managed to awaken themselves. Um, but for a lot of those people who are still dreaming, uh, their nightmares have bled into reality. They've, they've, because of Insomnia's death, which it's not 100% explained how that's the case, but because of Insomnia's death, the nightmares uh, and horrible things from people's dreams have manifested itself into reality, and we're told that this is to be concluded in Night Terror's Night's End. So, again, we're not we're not uh, treading any new ground here. You know, this is all sort of cliche and been there, done that. I thought the art was okay. Um, it, it is interesting, you know, in terms of Insomnia being a big bad, as opposed to just being a MacGuffin hunt, Williamson did add another layer, which 
you know, this level of manipulation that insomnia is able to um, sort of achieve and the way he's able to, to put one over on the heroes and get them to actually do what he wants when they're, when they, when they believe what they're doing is saving the day, that is worthy of, of being called a big bad. So I will give Williamson credit for the potential that insomnia has uh, later on. So uh, anyway, I thought it was okay. Like Rocky said earlier, I'm, I'm looking forward to this event being over. Um, and again, I know I went into it, you know, not really being very excited because the whole idea of Nightmare on Elm Street matched up with DC Comics just doesn't excite me. And it, it's it kind of lived up to expectations. It's not a terrible story, um, but it's not something that's really that really appeals to me. Uh, mixing superheroes and horror. So, anyway, what did you think of this issue, Rocky? Well, I thought that uh, I thought that the the reference to death metal was interesting because that that is the event that. That is the event where Insomnia's family, uh, again, this man, Chris Lucas, Chris Lucas's family is killed during death metal. Uh, I would hasten to point out that I thought at the end of death metal when Wonder Woman made that deal with the uh, cosmic gods, that the cosmic gods gods resurrected the entire planet. uh, And that was because of Wonder Woman's sacrifice. So apparently uh, Chris Lucas is the, the only person on the planet whose family wasn't resurrected or I guess... I'm, I'm, that, I think that's a little bit of an inconsistency there, but but maybe maybe because Chris Lucas's family was killed during death metal and not near the end, his family wasn't resurrected. He's got a Chris Lucas uh, insomnia has every right to feel bad and to get pissed off at the Justice League. And I would think in particular Wonder Woman, uh, that deal she made with the cosmic gods apparently resurrected everybody, I thought, except for insomnia's family. <laughs> and, uh, so poor Chris Lucas, poor insomnia. Um, I... I'm a little bit more critical of the reveal at the end that that Insomnia's genius about you know manipulating the heroes to manipulating Dead Man to bring the in, in, the Nightmare Stone to Arkham Asylum to approach the physical body of Chris Lucas, and so that Insomnia then could uh, within his own nightmare Insomnia could kill himself and then somehow that would bring in everybody's nightmare. The problem with that is number one, it's just a made up rule. I mean, there was no way that anybody could have guessed that. And I, I, that's, that's the worst type of storytelling in my view is that there's no way you could have guessed that given what we know. So I, it, felt, it felt contrived to me. Uh, I agree with you. On the other hand, your counterpoint is well taken that, well, Insomnia is a, you know, he is very, very manipulative and we don't necessarily have to know the rules. Uh, we can just be told them, but it feels a little bit like a cheat to me, but whatever, I'll, I'll accept it. Uh, I will point out, though, that in all the tie-ins, in multiple tie-ins, and I won't go through each individual one, but in multiple tie-ins, well, I'll use one as an example, Ravager. Ravager went out of her way to make sure that her nightmare never followed her into the real world, like the murder man, for example. Well, now all of that's for naught because all the nightmares are part of our world now because Insomnia is making sure everybody's nightmare gets to enter the real world now. And so it just seems like a lot of the plot points and story points of the tie-ins is, is rendered superfluous and pointless because Insomnia brought them all the nightmares into the world anyway, it seems to me. But uh, in any event, I will say that uh, I am kind of curious to see, I think at this point, if you've been with it this long, it'd be kind of curious to see, okay, how, how are the heroes now going to battle Insomnia now that he has brought all these nightmares of everybody's nightmare into the real world? How on... How do you fight that? 
now that, I mean, I don't know what the rules are. And in fact, that's my criticism of the storyline, but it's my general criticism of everything, anything mythological and magical is that we never know what the rules are. It's sort of like Williamson writing The Flash, where he constantly made up different rules for the Speed Force and it felt convoluted and all over the place. And the same thing he did, Williamson did the same thing during Dark Crisis. The plot points changed to, to, to match whatever story he needed to in order to get from point A to point B. And it's just, again, I'm being critical, but I, because uh, I do like some of what Williamson has done with Robin and I'm in high anticipation of his upcoming Batman and Robin. And uh, uh, in any event... I thought this was was okay, but I am kind of glad that we're nearing a, a nearing its completion. Yeah, I I guess I, I didn't think about it being a cheat, but you're you're right. I mean, at no point did Insomnia come across as kind of smart enough to pull that off. Um, but I guess it does um, provide a little more context into him. You know, the things he was saying. You mentioned it last time. The things he was saying about where the Nightmare Stone was supposedly hidden and how he was way off and it was in that limbo dimension. Yeah. Uh, if he knew all along, it was somewhere he couldn't reach it. Um, so, yeah, I can see both sides. Uh, anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Speaking of being wrong, Night Terrors Titans number two, <laughs> written by Andrew Constant, Scott Godlewski, and uh, Mike Norton are the artists. Ryan Cody and Hi-Fi handle the colors. Wes Abbott on letters. So last time I had said that this mysterious girl that we saw throughout, it was my belief that it was sort of the human side of Raven, the side that came from her mother as opposed to the magical, more mystical side that wasn't affected by uh, insomnia and wasn't put to sleep. So I thought that was the what would have been the human side of her. Come to find out, completely wrong. I got that completely wrong. This female that we're not told who the first issue turns out to be the human manifestation, not of Raven, but of Titan's Tower itself. And Titan's Tower used to be bl the Bloodhaven private prison. Uh, and so this manifestation, this personification of the tower itself is sort of um, driven by the spirits of a lot of the inmates that were there. Uh, one female inmate who looks like she was electrocuted in the electric chair specifically uh, but also some other inmates, you know, when she says who she is, she names off a bunch of names and the Titans are like, oh, those were names of inmates that were at, you know, the Bloodhaven private prison. So <laughs> you want to talk about a cheat, like nothing at all in the first issue gave any <laughs> clue that this was who this character was. Um, so, you know, I always say you got to give a, a series at least two or three issues to, to really have an idea. So I guess it's okay that it wasn't revealed. I, I do wish it was at least hinted at. That there was something we could have picked up on. But then again, I'm not reading these titles in such, um, you know, minute detail like we do something like The Cull, which you it's a more rewarding experience because there's so much depth of storytelling. There's not here. Um, so even if there had been clues, I, they might have, you know, gone right over my head because it's it's just not that interesting. Um, that being said, the idea of uh, Teen Titans, or ta not Teen, but Titans Tower having sentience, I kind of like that idea. You know, even if, you know, you think of things like uh, Knight Rider or something like that, um, where there's sort of this uh, personality to the, the tech. Obviously, it's a little different. It's mystical rather than technological, but it, it still is interesting. 
Um, what doesn't really make sense to me, though, you know, we're told same building or what have you, but in the art, I don't see how the building were shown that the prison is then Titan's Tower. Like, it seems to me the prison had to be completely torn down and then Titan's Tower built. Like, I don't see how any part of the prison is is reused. Uh, and what we're told, you know, the building shares some some pieces, I guess. Uh, maybe the foundation, I, I don't know. It's, I, maybe it's enough that it's just the grounds that the building is built upon, but they don't say that. They say the building. So, again, I know I'm nitpicking, but I just thought it was kind of weird. Um, and, and she def- even though this is Teen Titans, or Titan, I keep saying Teen, but even though this is the Titans book, this really is this the, the Towers book in a lot of ways, more so than it is about the Titans, because this character who... Uh, I can't remember. If she's uh, Joanne is what she likes. Joni. Call, what, they, they call her. They call her Joni at the end. Uh, I think it's Joanne. J O A N N E. Yeah, it might be jo- Joni, but I think it's Joanne. But anyway, regardless, she says she likes the name Joanne. Um, so apparently, that's going to be. Uh, oh, Joanne. Yeah, right. the, the yeah the 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 personality of the tower. Uh, whether we'll see her in actual physical form again, or she'll just be opening doors and they can talk to her and, you know, kind of like a Star Trek computer, I suppose. I I find that to be interesting, but she is the focus. Make no mistake. She is the focus of this issue more so than the Titans. Um, So yeah, I thought it was okay. I was completely wrong about it being Raven. So uh, yeah. Interesting choice for sure. What did you think of it? Well, I I think that, uh, I mean, I was all that bitching I did last issue about who is this woman? Because I was wondering who she was because no one mentioned her by name and I thought it was really odd. And so I thought it was really funny that uh, I, I thought it was just, frankly, I thought it was bad writing and then all of a sudden, oh my God, I guess it's intentional. But uh, you mentioned the fact that there was no clues and there really wasn't. And one of the things that I think, I don't know if this is writer Andrew Constance's fault or artist Scott Godlewski's uh, fault, but they really should have drawn Joan, jo- pardon me, Joanne differently. They shouldn't have made her look like Donna Troy. She, I mean, she looked like Donna Troy or like an old version of Raven. That was wrong. You should have made her look, you should have given her visual cues like on her clothing, maybe like a, a Teen Titans Tower symbol or or some kind of symbol related to the tower in her in her wardrobe or something or some clue her or hint in the dialogue. What's that? You could that? have done her coloring. You could have given her like white or silver hair like the, yeah. that matches the same color as the tower. That, that's as right. As opposed you, to dark hair like Troy or Raven like you're saying. Exactly. Or, or, or even prison clothes or something like that to make her look like a prisoner because, you know, we, we, we do know that Titans or Tower, the Titans Tower used to be Bloodhaven Prison. We know that. And so, but in any event, it is what it is. I, uh, it's, I, I do find it interesting. I agree with you that now with, with Joanne being the, this almost the sentience of the tower, I, I thought it would have been maybe a little bit more, I think a more interesting explanation would have been if, Titan's Tower would have been uh, with the Lazarus reign that in, in you know, maybe the, the the computer tech or the computer system of Budhaven Prison being just, you know, dismantled, remnants of it was still around. And when they were building Titan's Tower and then with the Lazarus reign infecting it, it sort of merged the two and the, the two created a sentience or something. Like, no, no, I don't know. I mean, just... Uh, 
in any in any event, I guess it worked. Uh, I just thought it, I really think this comes down to the art. I think with the right type of visual cues, this could have been a real cool kind of mystery, one that we could have maybe theorized about in the first issue had we gotten some clues. But as it turned out, I was just pissed off because I thought it was bad writing, but it actually wasn't. It had a purpose. And you guessed wrong, uh, but it was an educated guess. And then we were both wrong. And now we end up with this reveal. And it's like kind of a missed opportunity for a better story had there been a better uh communication or a better collaboration between writer and artist uh, but uh and andrew constant you know i gotta say this is a rare miss for him because i isn't he the same writer who wrote wrote the uh titans united or i believe he is right was that no titans united was kevin scott ah right so scratch that so i don't know i don't know what the hell yeah. andrew constant's written then but he sounds uh, familiar. you remember that you remember that demon miniseries that brad walker drew demon miniseries hell on earth oh wow yeah that's 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 going back a ways yeah yeah he did yeah. that and he's done he's done some other a lot of one-shot anthology stuff yeah so but, yeah i mean i typically like his stuff and yeah it's not a bad story i think maybe maybe the limitation of two issues um and it is a lot of characters you know we've seen this before you look at tim sheridan's run on uh, titans academy where he had a lot of editorial interference it's, it's a lot to juggle right yeah like if if this had just been focused on Raven and Joanne or Donna Troy and Joanne, it might've, it might've worked yeah. without having to, to put in so much. Cause again, this last issue, the Titans are barely in it. It's all, it's all about Joanne really. So yeah. anyway, let's move on. I have a feeling if I had to guess, this is going to be my guess for the night terrors book that you liked. Uh, it's <laughs> night terrors, detective comics, number two written by Dan waters, Ricardo Federici, uh, Mike Perkins and Stefano Raphael are the artists. Brad Anderson, Mike Spicer, and Lee Luffridge handle the colors. Steve Wands on letters. And then uh, is this one of the ones that has a backup or several that? No, that no backup in this one. No backup in this one, no. Uh, yeah, just an ending that, yeah, we'll talk about, which I thought was kind of weird. But anyway, am I right? Is this the, it the was. Nice one that you enjoyed? You, you are right. It was a uh, good guess. And uh, the reason why I like it is, uh, I, I, you know, Dan Waters, man, he's a writer that I, I, I'm beginning to think the reason why I never appreciated some of his past writing, because he, he wrote the back, he wrote the Arkham Map War or... New, yeah, New World Order. New World Order. Uh, and I think maybe it was because Danny was the artist that it, it didn't quite work for me. But maybe it, it's this uh, art by Federici here who, that just makes this... A little bit more uh, easy for me. Uh, he just tells a better story here. I, I really like this. Uh, what what Dan Waters manages to do here with Enrique Federici's art, uh, it manages. He manages to tell a story, a, a nightmare, almost within a nightmare, because this is uh, the story being told here is that there are three citizens of Gotham who, basically, using their imagination, call upon these penta priests. Uh, in order to make a wish and one of them wishes for wealth and this other uh, this uh, one woman wishes for wealth and one one man named Mortimer wishes for power and uh, a third person who ends up being revealed as Barbara Gordon wishes for knowledge and what's what's incredible about it and how Danny uh, Dan Waters manages to draw all this in is that is the 
the, the guy who wishes for power ends up wearing the sort of like the, the bat suit that Jim, James Gordon wore when he was Batman. And he, he, he becomes all corrupted and he want, and, you know, tries to essentially de- destroy Gotham in, in, in a vain attempt to save it. Meanwhile, the woman who wishes for wealth to use the wealth to try to save Gotham, uh, she ends up her she ends up puking out diamonds at the end of the first issue. So because the, the Penta priests from the fifth dimension, they give you what you wish for, but they give you the darkest aspect of what you wish for. And so the woman who wishes for wealth chokes in, in, on diamonds. The guy that wishes for power becomes a corrupt version of Batman. And Barbara Gordon wishes for knowledge. And what I and in a, in a stroke of what I think is subtly brilliant by Dan Waters is that the knowledge that Barbara Gordon gains is the knowledge and the realization of what has already been revealed in the pages of Batman. And that is she's noticed in the pages of Detective Comics that that Batman is slowing down. Bruce Wayne is slowing down. She also noticed that her her father, Jim, Jim Gordon, his his when did his hair become completely gray? Dad, you're getting old. Batman is, is, is slower than he used to be. Even Bruce Wayne, Batman himself has acknowledged that. And the idea that we're so fragile and to the Penta priests, we're also fragile in this dimension. And the Penta priests are from that fifth dimension and they they literally can block out insomnia. Insomnia was prevented from entering this particular nightmare. Because the Penta priests who are are sort of powered by the imagination of people uh, as embodied through this this watch, this clock that Barbara Gordon herself acquired on the dark web. Uh, they, that's how they were manifested. And so it ends here with, with uh, Barbara Gordon uh, shattering into glass, with Jim Gordon also breaking into glass, uh, with uh, the, the woman dying of, of puking out diamonds, the one guy being de- destroyed by be- becoming a corrupted Batman. And all, and then at the very end, the final page, just when you think the Pentapriest might be a figment of the imagination, maybe this is all a dream and we've all just, and, and Dan Waters has pulled a fast one on all of us, but then the final page in, sh- reveals that uh, an unknown mysterious individual has walked into a, a, a clock, a watch shop, and ha- and buys the very same clock that Barbara Gordon referenced as can, as as being able to access the fifth dimension. It's meaning that we might see the Penta priests at some time in the future, uh, notwithstanding that we first meet them here in Night Terrors. I thought it was brilliant. I, I love this story of, you know, be careful what you wish for. You get the darker aspects of what you wish for. It's a real twist on like three wishes. And you got these three outstanding citizens of Gotham, all well-meaning, all want to make Gotham a better place, a man, woman, and Barbara Gordon. And oh my God, things go awry and it really does turn into a nightmare. I thought this was so well done. This could have been essentially a story uh, outside of Night Terrors and it would still work. I thought it worked so well. Dan Waters' stories in the past when he's done backups, uh, when he did the backup in Detective Comics for Ram V, a lot of his short stories didn't work at all. A lot of it had to do, I think, maybe because the artist he was with or maybe I just struggled with Dan Waters' writing. But this one, he nailed it. I happen to, I just happened to understand it this time. <laughs> and I'm so glad I did. And so I'm really hoping that uh, Dan Waters uh, continues to impress me like this because I, I, I really enjoyed this. And this is this is my Night Terrors uh, pick of the week uh, for Night Terrors. So what do you think of it? Yeah, I agree with you on the art. First half of the book is uh, Federici. Second half is Perkins. And I think Stefano Raphael does that just that last page. 
I have absolutely no idea who the mysterious guy is that buys the clock off the wall. Um, yeah. I wish I knew it was, but yeah, I have no, I have no clue. We're not, didn't look like a familiar person or what have you. Um, I also thought, I mean, it, but the art's amazing, right? Like the scene where Gordon tricks the guy, um, Blake into destroying the police cruiser. He comes in and then fools him into thinking that it's his, that he's killed his own family. That was just, I mean, wow. The, the yeah. scene where the car explodes is just, yeah, it's, it just looks really cool. It's just done really, really well. Um, yeah, it's really but cool. yeah, I thought that, uh, that this was really strong storytelling and, uh, the, the only, the only nitpick I have, you know, you mentioned what Bar Barbara Gordon wished for, and I just don't know that that resonated with me that well. I mean, she, cause she says she kind of knew that it, that she was being tricked in a way or, you know, that she shouldn't necessarily be wishing for what she was wishing for. So yeah, I just wasn't sure that that worked, uh, that, that it worked for me. And it, cause she, she, she says something when she's kind of laying there when her father discovers her, you know, she talks about how she's knew better than to think that, you know, wishes grand by gods basically wouldn't come with strings attached, you know, that they, they wouldn't be uh, trying to trick them uh, in a way. So that, that didn't exactly ring true for me, especially because Barbara is supposed to be so intelligent uh, but I get it. It needed to be that way, f you know, for the story to work. So, so I didn't mind it necessarily. I thought it was okay. Um, other than that, yeah, I mean, it was a little, it, I don't want to say paint by the numbers or what have you, but you're right in saying that it, um, it felt like it could be a story that didn't necessarily have to be tied into tonight tears. That was, that was definitely true. So. Yeah, was uh, it was very strong, and the artwork was was great as well. So, don't really have much more to add. Uh, all right, let's move on. Night Terrors Action Comics number two, Power Girl story written by Leah Williams, art is by Vasco Gregev, colors by Alex Guermas, and letters by Becca Carey. And then we have a very short second story, I guess we'll say, um, and. It, well, I don't even know if it's a second story. I guess it's a continuation. I guess it's just an epilogue of the first one because it's, it's by the same creative team that leads into Power Girl number one. It's coming out in September. But then we do have the second story that's by uh, writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Miko Suyan and Fico Osio. Colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr. And letters by Dave Sharp. Um, so what did you think of this, Rob? I thought this was, uh, this was, I thought, really by the numbers. I thought it was uh, boring. Yeah, that's going to be my sum up of the, the the last few we do here for for night terrors. I was I, I it's just writer Lee, Lee Williams here. Just uh, this wasn't. I didn't find it particularly revealing to me. I didn't find it all that exciting. It, this was very very by the numbers. This was just a glorified ongoing. This was a conversation that that it didn't tell us anything we didn't already know. This is just Power Girl waking up. Every time she wakes up, she's waking up to another dream, and it's Omen, and her and her. It's not really Omen; it's insomnia, and it's just a bad dream. That's it. And Power Girl's actually sleeping or somewhere else, and it's it's 
it, it doesn't do anything. Like it doesn't, it, it, we don't really learn anything about Kara, uh, a part of me, Paige. Uh, we don't learn anything about Omen. Uh, this was really uh, very disappointing. I, I like the first, I like the, I like Night Terror's Action Comics number one, where at least maybe we got some sign of how Paige conceptualized her history on Krypton before she went to Earth 2 and before all that jazz. Like I would have liked to have seen some conception, even a, a darker conception continued in this particular issue in terms of her past, uh, even if it was sort of twisted. But uh, th there's just not much that happens here. I mean, just nothing. I mean, she just, literally, she just is, is she's just having a bunch of dark visions and um, she just brags about being able to have the mental fortitude to overcome it. She knows it's a nightmare. And she then wakes up and that's really it. She goes and she has a shower and she looks outside and it's going to be continued in Night Terror's Night's End. Not, nothing happened. I mean, I mean when, I, when I think of, you know, what I just finished talking about, we just finished reviewing Detective Comics, where there was this huge theme. There was this other three wishes and there was, there was a story within the story and a nightmare within a nightmare. And it made you think and it was thought provoking. And it, it made, you got into the minds of the characters and it, the art was, was, was fantastic and it was, it was challenging. And you could, see the, you could see the insightful collaboration between artist and writer. And here we get here and this is absolutely surface level, unrevealing stuff that, I mean, it's... Uh, I got to tell you, it was just very, very disappointing. Uh, I mean, other than maybe the, the covers, I mean, there's a there's a eclectic array of Power Girl covers, which actually, if I'm honest, all of them are disappointing as well. <laughs> there's a Cyborg Superman that's pretty good, but most of the covers are disappointing too. So, I mean, hey, you can't hit it out of the park all the time, Night Terror. Sometimes both the story, the the uh, uh, the art's okay, your interior art, but the story here and most of the variant covers, I, I it was it was disappointing for me. So, before we get to the backup, what do you think of the uh, main story with Power Girl? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was okay. It it does a, it does do a couple of things, um, and maybe it's just you know reinforcing some things that we already knew about Power Girl. Um, or if you want to <clears throat> if you want to think about it, um, kind of again being new reader friendly, yeah. kind of the. And this isn't a hundred percent a situation where I would say it's in, entirely accurate, but it is a situation where okay, you've got Power Girl, and she's and she's very, I guess we'll say hard on herself is the best way to put it, right? Um, because she, when she's confronting the version of Omen that's in her dream, you know, she said, she said. You know, Omen's talking about how Power Girl thinks that being close to somebody gives them power to hurt you and just a lot of the trauma she's gone through and the things in her life that haven't been great and, and all that. Um, and it's it's very telling what Power Girl says. She's like, you make that sound like that's a bad thing that I've kept myself isolated, you know? Um, you're, you're, you're like a stupid machine reminding me of how being loved always led to me getting hurt, but I'll let you in on a little secret. Nobody hates me as much as I, or like I hate me, right? So there's some self-loathing there that we're being reminded of or 
being made aware of. And again, it may be a situation where there are fans or DC fans or what have you, people that have read Power Girl for a long time that or haven't read Power Girl that may not be aware of kind of the trauma that she has, the th- you know, the guilt that she carries around for various reasons, whether it's, you know, legitimate or not in terms of her feeling guilty for surviving Krypton, it's, you know, survivor's guilt. And then the other thing is this idea of this Kryptonian ship that she's dealt with in the past, the symbio ship that she keeps waking up in time and time again. And um, that must be part of the story that's going to be told in Power Girl number one, because that's kind of what the um, this uh, epilogue tells us. You know, weeks later, whatever, we see this guy that, that uh, finds some piece of technology um, that's attached to like a crab or something that was from the symbio ship. And then the guy looks like he's infected, part cybernetic or what have you. So, or, you know, giving people that aren't familiar with that story some idea of that. And then the last thing, maybe the most important, is, yeah, she does go through, it's, it mentioned what, that she she stops counting after attempt number 547 to wake up from this dream. She's been she's just been doing it over and over and over. Um, and so I, I will say that does speak to the tenacity of Power Girl, despite her, you know, being hard on herself in a lot of ways, being her harshest critic and what have you. She, there's no arguing that she's not um, determined, right? She's she's very much a, a very determined individual. So um, there is that as there is that aspect of the story as well. I'm I'm glad. Um, I'm but glad I do feel like the second story uh, provides a little bit more context from um, Philip Kennedy Johnson. What were your thoughts on that one? Well, I, I just want to mention a point about Power Girl. Uh, you made a good point about her having self-loathing where she talks about, you know, she hates herself. Nobody hates her more than she hates herself. I That's news to me. I would like to have known what where the justification is coming from that. In what part of Power Girl's history does she suddenly, has, has she suddenly developed this sense of self-loathing? That's surprising to me. I can maybe come up with something in my own way, but I would have liked to have seen a little bit more exploration of that. If these two issues of Night Terror's Power Girl was about her self-loathing, uh, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more indication of that. Or maybe maybe I missed it, but I, I, I think that's an interesting angle to take. It's an interesting angle. I just wish it was was maybe maybe flushed out a little bit more. But uh, Yeah, and I will say, um, you know, you bring up a good point because the other part of that is, isn't that – I mean, people get Power Girl and Supergirl, Kara uh, – mixed up all the time, right? Um, that is a Supergirl thing, right? When you want to talk about survivor's guilt, that, that's traditionally been something that Supergirl, that Kara's dealt with, yeah. much more so than Karen or Power Girl or Paige, whatever name you want to call yeah. her this week. So, but, yeah, but they do have the it. same origin. They both lost an entire world, so yeah. it, it would make yeah. sense that they would probably have the same kind of self-loathing if, in fact, that's an angle they want to uh, go in. Uh, right. But I think I think Tom King did that did an aspect of that psychological experience with Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow. I think it's uh, no one's done it better yet. But uh, in any event, uh, the backup here with uh, actually. Uh, oh, yeah, this. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I got to say the backup with Philly Kennedy Johnson, uh, Miko Se- Suoyen's art and Fico Osio, sorry, colors, Romeo Fajoda Jr. The art's fantastic. I mean, it really is fantastic. The, uh, it just, it, 
it was it was a visual feast just to watch. I actually I remember like literally clicking through the pages of these preview pages before I even read the dialogue. I literally looked at the pictures and then I went back to read the dialogue and I enjoyed the pictures more to be honest. Uh, I mean this is ultimately at the end of the day it's just a nightmare, but man, what a what a beautiful to look at uh, this is really good, uh, really good. Probably some of the best uh, art in all of uh, Night Terrors. Maybe it's just my own bias, but I, I sort of have a love for that traditional DC style, and that's what I, I feel that uh, uh, these two artists bring to the table here. Uh, I love the uh, I love the the nightmare idea of the Mongol who was being resurrected. I thought that was really cool because I part of me kind of regrets that Mongol. The Mongol who was 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 killed, you know, because Mongol's such a cool villain, and so it's kind of like to see him back, even if he is as a nightmare corpse or whatever. <laughs> and it, where he has this this you know the Mongol's chains, he's got this child chained to his chest. I mean, it, it really does look nightmarish. And then you got Cyborg Superman thrown in. It it really really works. And there's more than a few double page spreads of the art, uh, the, the, the use of the, the different shapes of paneling. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just really, really good. I mean, this looks like a genuine nightmarish scenario. And I think it's, it almost feel, it almost looks like it's in the equal number of pages as the power girl story, but I liked it both visually and in terms of the story itself, uh, is I, I thought was, was more interesting. Again, I don't think necessarily a heck of a lot was revealed in the nightmare, but it was just really a, a pleasure just to sit back and look at look at the visuals. So, what do you think? Oh, sorry, you're on mute, Jace. Yeah, that's always always got to do it at least once an episode. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things stood out for me here. So, well, of course, vi- narratively, a couple of things stood out. Visually, you're right. Art is absolutely fantastic. No surprise there. Uh, Miko Suyan, Fika Osio, both artists whose styles I, I really enjoy. They're an uh, interesting uh, team-up here. So, yeah, very very visceral, very action-packed. A lot of big panels, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, so the art, yeah, top-notch. As far as narratively, a few things, right? So showing the strength of the Superman family, which it's something that we have sort of seen in the Batman family a lot, especially in recent uh, years, where they really rely on each other. It really feels like a family. They really care about each other, uh, and that, that comes across. Not to say that you ever think the Superman family doesn't care about each other, but a Superman family hasn't been as prominent for as long as the Batman family. So um, just a reminder. And also Philip Kenny Johnson, you know, he's talked about uh, and he's done a good job of portraying it. Sort of the the I don't want to say negative feelings, but there's, there's a part of John that I don't want to say he resents the super twins, but there's a part of him that wishes that he had what they have, right? Because they, they are sort of of the age he was when he disappeared. So they're going to get to have some some years with his parents that John himself is is missing. And and so, you know, there is a little bit of drama there and, and you know, some, some maybe negative feelings. Um, but despite all that, they care about each other. They reinforce their beliefs in each other. It helps as these, because they're very young kids, it helps as they're growing up to know that they're people. There are people that believe in them, and you know, Lois and, and Clark are not in this issue. These are sort of the you know the younger members of the the Superman family. You know, there's no Kara or Paige. Um, 
so this really is kind of the, the next generation and the way they they stand up for each other and fight for each other and as uh, Hank Henshaw Superman is trying to manipulate the twins and and you know make them doubt themselves you've got Keenan and Connor and Natasha Iron stepping up and saying no don't don't you know believe what he's telling you you know you have worth you you've overcome so much already don't buy into you know what's happening so I appreciated that aspect of it. I, th- I really enjoyed that from uh, from Philip. And then the other part is, you know, as it's revealed, as things are going on, they're battling um, Cyborg Superman. They're like, this isn't our nightmare. This is yours, right? And it's a good reminder of how broken a character Hank Henshaw was even before he became Cyborg Superman, right? Like, good job from those um, Superman creators back in the 90s in the Triangle era of creating a very complex character, and, and making him at least start out as sympathetic. He, Cyborg Superman, he's not a sympathetic character at all anymore. But you could say the same thing about uh, Metallo, uh, and yet Kenny Johnson has managed to make him feel a little more sympathetic lately. But just this idea of a guy who is under intense pressure, be this astronaut, be all you can be kind of thing. Um, and, you know, that, that expression, shit rolls downhill. He used to kind of take it out on his wife. He, <laughs> he, you know, not necessarily physically abusive, but sort of mentally or um, emotionally abusive, you know, because he was under so much stress. Uh, and then he, you know, goes out into space and, you know, the accident happens, he becomes Cyborg Superman. And he, you know, his relationship falls apart with his wife and all that sort of thing. And he, he blames it on becoming Cyborg Superman in the accident and all that sort of stuff. When really, not not unlike Victor Freeze in the... Um, the uh, Batman one bad day, Mr. Freeze special where it was like, dude, you blew it already. Like you can blame it on becoming a supervillain, but she already didn't want to have anything to do with you. Uh, and, and so I thought that was interesting as well. Um, and we've been getting a lot of cyborg Superman from, uh, from Philip Kenny Johnson. And I'm all for it. I think he's an underused Superman villain for sure. Yeah. So yeah, uh, got more out of the backup and enjoyed the art more than in, in the first one. Although, not, not, not to say there was anything wrong with the art in the first uh, in the first story. I thought the art was uh, by uh, Vasco Gregov was was really good. And you mentioned the covers not being that great. Um, yeah, I thought I thought they were okay. Um, like the one with uh, Cyborg Superman where he's flying up, and that that's the thing about Cyborg Superman that makes it kind of tough. It's this one the covers by Fika Osio. I'm pretty sure there's so little. Uh, like actual human anatomy on cyborg Superman's face. You know, it's basically one eye. OCO, I think does a great job of giving us uh, some emotion. Like he looks sad there. Right. And then when you read the story and see his wife manifest, you can kind of understand that. <laughs> and then I also, I thought the power girl one by Tyler Kirkham was okay. Um, with insomnia in the background. When I first glanced at it, I thought, why is Solomon Grundy on the cover? Oh wait, <laughs> that's, uh, that's insomnia. I thought, I thought that one was okay. Um, I also want to mention, you know, we're kind of halfway through our issues here, maybe a little less than halfway. Uh, the return of the DC house ad, which has been coming around more and more lately. Uh, apparently there's an action comics presents doomsday special uh, coming. And it, the subtitle is hell has a new King. So I guess doomsday's taking over hell from near on, I guess. I don't know. 
might be might be pretty interesting. The well, idea it's, of- writ- it's written by Dan Waters, and uh, you know yeah. Dan Waters just impressed me with his night terrors, and I I have snuck a sneak peek of Doomsday Special, and I actually enjoyed it. So I would encourage people to maybe check out the Doomsday Special. I I thought it was a lot it was great. Yeah, if it, it feels like Dan Waters is sort of taken over as DC's go to like supernatural horror guy. You know, yeah. Tynan's still does, he's doing a little work in the Sandman corner of the DCU, but he's doing a lot of creator own stuff. So it's like Dan Waters has taken over that role. He's doing a good job. Yeah. Uh, but what I'm, I, what, for some reason, like seeing that visual and saying hell has a new king, it gave me this vibe. Like if Doomsday's, and maybe it's just for the fact that if a villain becomes popular enough to have their own title, what, what seems to follow that? Right. First, they get their own title as a villain, and then gradually they start to pivot into yeah. anti-hero. Right. Yep. Like and that's what I like. I saw that, and I was like, "Oh, that might be interesting." And then immediately, the my next thought was, "Oh God, please don't turn Doomsday into an anti-hero." Like, <laughs> there's nothing redeeming about Doomsday. Come on, come on, DC, don't do it. Uh, anyway. Moving on, uh, up next we have Night Terror's Angel Breaker, number two. This is from writer Tim Seeley. Aki Bright is the artist. Brian Reber handles the colors. And Seda Tamafanta on letters. What did you think of this? Uh, this was uh, uh, this was the first issue of uh, Night Terror's Angel Breaker. I actually was impressed because I it, we got to meet some of the kids of the, the Cobra Cult. I keep on saying Cobra Kai, <laughs> the Karate Kid uh, streaming show there, but no, this is the Cobra Cult, and we, we we met some kids of the Cobra Cult, and that are you know suitably brainwashed by the Cobra Cult, and but they got their teachers, and they got the, they also got this sort of like snake device that uh, that Angel Breaker basically wants to obtain uh, as a way be, of gaining some of the fighting skills of all of her potential nemesis or potential adversaries, and of course when she takes. Um, uh, Angel Breaker takes. Oh, I forget the guy's name again. Um, God, what's the guy's name? Raptor. Uh, what's that? Raptor. Yes, Raptor? Thank, yes, right. Raptor. She takes Raptor, and they're sort of uh, they end up becoming inconvenient allies in uh, in the, they they infiltrate this this Cobra cult just when the nightmare wave hits and. Uh, Angel Breaker ends up having to confront a nightmare of her own making in Nanny Gillow, who is essentially sort of a uh, someone from her past and her, her childhood that she's uh, that she's that she believes she was destined to to kill, and that only she has the ability to take out. And it's it's sort of re- regarding uh, Angel Breaker's past. And I want to give uh, you know, got to give some credit to the. Some credit to the writer, uh, uh, Tim Seeley. I like that he gave Angel Breaker, he sort of expanded on Angel Breaker's history. And we got this, we got even an expansion of the Cobra Cult. The, the Cobra Cult, uh, Cobra is more interesting now too, you know, because I, I like the idea that we got, we got Gotham Academy and we got, we got Teen Titans Academy and we got uh, Mystic U and now we're, we might have Cobra Cult. I, I, I like that we, we're slowly getting these expansions of, of a younger generation of legacy heroes and why not legacy villains as well? And so it makes a lot of sense. In terms of the story itself, I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty decent. Uh, we actually end up with uh, one of the children even gets killed here. This is kind of this is actually kind of dark. And it kind of bloody well should be because it's, you know, it is a nightmare after all. Uh, but this one is, is, is definitely 
darker and I, I expect it to be dark and I liked I like the rapport between Raptor and Angel Breaker. They both uh, they both end up having to make a sacrifice at the end and they ultimately uh, Angel Breaker ends up giving up the very thing she was looking after in order to save the children, in order to save them, to save the school. And at the end, she knows that her and Raptor are going to ultimately end up falling asleep because uh, through, for various reasons, which I won't go into, the in order to defeat, they, they end up being, when they were within the school, they were protected from certain aspects of the, the nightmare wave, but that was no longer the case at the end when they managed to be victorious. Uh, but they ended, ultimately ended up falling asleep and they will ultimately end up, end up fighting in Night Terrace Night's End uh, in, in what this will be continued in. But I thought this was, was uh, very well done. Uh, kudos to artist uh, Aki Bright. I thought the art worked you know, relatively well. It's not particularly my style, but Aki Bright's style is does have a manga feel to it. Yeah, we're seeing more and more. Obviously, over the last five five years, we're seeing more and more of manga style type of art, art artistic influence in in the art at DC, and uh, I'm I'm sure that's very intentional and deliberate. And uh, you know, it, it grew on me, and I thought it worked. And you know, this is one, I, I, I do think Angel Breaker, these two issues are one of the better Night Terror stories that are out there. And I'm, I'm really interested. I'm more interested now in Angel Breaker as a character. I'm more interested in Raptor as a character. And I'm more interested in the Cobra Cult and these children. And so that's a compliment to these two issues. They served a purpose. They got me liking these characters. I'm interested in them. And kudos to Tim Seeley for doing a good job and to artist Aki Bright because, you know, I can nitpick the story, but at the end of the day, I'm going to remember it. And that says something. So what about you? Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Um, if I had, <coughs> excuse me, if I had any nitpick about it, it's a, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot here. It's a, it's a, it's a very fast paced story. We're seeing Raptor. We've seen him before. Uh, we're seeing Angel Breaker. We've seen here before, but they're, they're thrown in and the, it's such a high octane story that, and it's a very fast paced because it has to be right. Because Tim's only got two issues to tell it. I'm reminded a little bit of his King Shark miniseries that he did recently, uh, which I really enjoyed. That was obviously more than two issues. And I feel like that was better, but only because he, he had a little more space to let the story breathe, right? So we got a little more humor. We got a little more characterization. We got a little more world building. Um, here it's like pedal to the metal, two issues, go. Um so yeah, I, I agree with you. It's it's well done. It does make me want to know more about Raptor and Angel Breaker, the Cobra Academy less so, but there's potential there. Um, but it it would need to be a series that is you know don't give me a one shot, don't give me a two issue. Like give me a give me a six issue focused on Angel Breaker. Like, can we go back and you know see her origin maybe see. Know how she became what she is. Get get a little bit of her time and with the League of Assassins and what have you, because that's the stuff. It, it, it's not necessarily I don't want to see her in current time, but I I want to know more about how she became the way she. Like, why is she the way she is? Why is she so distrusting? Why is she the way she is? And Raptor, you know, he's a, he's an interesting character in that he has his own sense of justice, uh, very very rigid in a way, almost like a peacemaker kind of thing. You know, like. A, I want peace so bad. I'll, I'll do anything for it, including, you know, killing people, including being violent, which is the opposite of peace. Um, but 
you know, Raptor, he's got his code of justice or his own code of morality. And it's so important to him that even Angel Breaker is mentioning it to the kids, you know? Um, so obviously there's a lot there to, uh, to explore as well. So, um, yeah, I don't know that you necessarily do, do them together because again, I, you re- I really want a comic where they have the space, um, to really explore who these characters are. Um, I don't know if there'd be enough demand for it, but I, I'm curious enough. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Last of the night terrors, uh, tie-ins we have this week is Harley Quinn. Number two from writer Tinney Howard, Hayden Sherman on art, Triona Farrell on color, Steve Wands on letters. Um, my favorite part about this was just seeing this multiversal different version of Harley that had this like mashup origin of like Batman's origin and Flash's origin. And she had all these powers and she ends up going up against Brainiac and the art style is like this old school Silver Age newsprint sort of art style with the dot uh, <laughs> dot coloring and what have you. I don't. I know there's a term for it. I can't think of it. But um, yeah, it was just really interesting. And the other thing, and you know, we complimented Tinny Howard on this previously. When we talked about her Catwoman work was how well her Catwoman um, added context. The first issue adding context to what's come so far in her Catwoman run, and then the second issue of her Night Terror series adding. Uh, kind of foreshadowing what's to come in the Batman Catwoman war, uh, Gotham war, what have you. Um, and so it tied in really well. This is tying in as well, right? Like Harley's having this nightmare and it has everything to do with Lady Quark and this idea of her being tied into the multiverse in, in a way and being a very powerful character, which, I mean, we think about Harley, she's, she's been maybe the most street character. Like when you, if you go back to her origins, right. And really talk about who she was in the, in the cartoon, she didn't have any superpowers. She didn't, she wasn't really formidable in terms of, you know, being a, um, a threat physically, you know, she had her giant mallet and that was, that was it, you know, but she could do damage with it, but no more so than anyone else swinging a giant mallet might have. And then gradually to make her more interesting, to make her more formidable, you know, the, background comes in of Olympic level gymnasts and all this sort of thing to maybe culminated in the uh, heroes in crisis moment. You know what I'm talking about, Rocky, where she manages to escape from the Trinity, which I just found to be absolutely, I mean, I love Tom King. Don't get me wrong, but that was just <laughs> that was ridiculous. Um, so this idea that Tinny's introducing here with there's something more to Harley than meets the eye. And she's got this multiversal power uh, yeah, there, I find that to be a little bit interesting. Uh, I don't know how well it works in terms of how do you mesh that together with her zany personality? I mean, I suppose you could say that her zany personality is caused by her being influenced. She talks about the voices in her head all the time, right? Or has in the past. Well, if she's got a connection to the multiverse in a way that others don't, maybe she, the voices she's hearing in her head are other Harleys from other parts of the multiverse. So there's, there's ways to make it make sense and there's ways to make it interesting. Um, I just, is she the right character for this though? Like, you know, she has been very much street and not super powered. And now we're getting this idea that maybe she's got these, these powers, but the other part of it. And you know, the reason that lady Quark is keeping her eye on her, you know, she even says, yeah, you, you're somebody so, so special, right? Like, 
uh, you did it effortlessly. You're, you're able to, to, you know, travel to different parts of the multiverse. Like that power is a big threat. <laughs> you know, you could damage the multiverse. Um, but again, it's, it's interesting the way Tinny explains it. She's like, yeah, artists, children, you know, certain people of a certain type of, uh, of personality, poets, outsiders, they, they have those gifts. So it makes sense. Like I like that aspect of what Titty has done, yeah. but whew, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how Harley fans are going to take this. Um, but I also thought the art was uh, from Hayden Sherman was done really well. Cause again, he's, he's uh, transitioning through a bunch of different styles, you know, going to that old school silver age, golden age style, having a more modern style at, at times and, you know, getting to draw Harley and all these different costumes, probably a lot of fun as well. So yeah, fantastic, fantastic art. Uh, I like the backup less, but what do you think of the main, the main story? Well, I'm reminded of the words of uh, the, uh, the late great Robin Williams, something along the lines of uh, we were all born with a kind of, with a sense of madness and we mustn't lose it. <laughs> well, Harley Quinn hasn't lost her madness. And, you know, last week uh, you mentioned, uh, Jace, that uh, Brainiac seems to be showing up everywhere. He's showing up in the pages of Superman with Lobo and he's showing up in the pages of Icon V Rock and he's over in Earth 93. And here he is uh, in this, uh, in this, crazy dream of Harley and what I find hilarious here is that Brainiac shows up and he says something uh, quite interesting to Harley he basically tells her he says that uh, he's concerned and I just want to uh, where is it here it's, uh, he says to her in every reality the more you dance with madness the more powerful you become so he's really concerned about Harley because Harley in every, apparently in every as every aspect of the multiverse wherever Harley is she gets more mad and she becomes more powerful and there is something crazy and zany about that i i don't i don't like that i i don't I, I've said repeatedly that I'm not a fan of the current iteration of Harley Quinn. I, I don't think DC is handling the character correctly, but I feel that they're forced to because she's simply too corporately powerful. I think Harley Quinn is better off evil and uh, psychotic, uh, but that she's they're, they're not going that route with her. And clearly Teeny Howard isn't either. But the idea here that, that Harley Quinn is kind of a wild card and in the and, and in the words of Lady Quark herself when she says, well, uh, it took uh, you no time at all and, and when I saw all that you've done, Harley, I, I knew that you were every bit the threat I imagined you to be. <laughs> so you're waiting for Lady Quark to say, oh, you know what? You're, you're a really nice person despite you being crazy and insane. No, that's not it at all. You know, in fact, Lady Quark would appear to a good brainiac. The more crazy you become, the more powerful you become. And that's not a good thing. That's not, at least not necessarily a good thing. And I think that's kind of true. And... And Harley Quinn is just, she is always the wild card wherever she goes. And such a wild card that uh, she's a wild card that, of course, shows her, rears her head. The wild card aspect of Harley Quinn will play a significant role in the upcoming Birds of Prey series by Kelly Thompson. A little bit of a teaser spoiler there. And uh, it's it's interesting to see what DC is doing with Harley. And I understand, and, and what Teeny Howard's doing here, I think, is consistent with 
with where the direction that Harley might be going uh, in the DC universe. But uh, overall, I, I, I really liked the art, Hayden Sherman's art. I really liked it. It was perfect. I, I love the reference to multiversity when it showed Earth Designate Zero with a cool looking costume for uh, Harley Quinn in front of the what looked like the the a new 52 version of the uh, of the uh, uh, Justice League. But in any event, I liked it. I was completely confused with the backup, and uh, I don't know. Maybe it's best that you talk about that because I don't have much to say about the backup. I was hoping you can explain. Uh, I don't know. Uh, okay. Man. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, press Presca View Part Two of Two. Leah Williams. Yeah. On script. PJ Holden on art. Lee Lefferts on colors. You know, we saw last time that uh, this future version of Harley came and recruited the the present version of Harley to go and help her save the, the multiverse. And it's this interesting story where basically they are, from what I could understand of it, Harley has become sort of the guardian of like the last shard of the multiverse. Right. And they, they have to do something like every 10 years, manipulate some machinery or whatever to keep what's left of the multiverse going and they're you know they're the only ones that are able to do that and so basically the way i understood it is that harley that there's only one singular harley at a time that's guarding this and it, sort of using their multiversal energy to keep this equipment going and then when they get close to being out of energy it's their job to go into another part of the multiverse and recruit another harley to take their place and the cycle continues um that's what I got out of it, whether I'm yeah. interpreting it correctly or not. I actually have no idea if I'm interpreting that correctly or not. I could be completely wrong uh, about it, but that's, again, that's how I took it. And I, I mean, I guess it's playing into some, you know, it ties into the, the main story in as much as this idea of Harley as this multiversal guardian or character or what have you. Um, but maybe it's tying into something that's going to, come about in the future i i don't know yeah. so i can't say much more of it beyond that because uh, that that's what i got out of it but yeah, yeah. i'm not i'm not well, i'm not real sure maybe I, had a different interpretation i don't know no no i i really didn't i you helped clarify for me i was just confused by it i but then i'm not like i said i i have a bias i'm not a fan of this of i you know, uh, I wanted to look at the brights. I, I can understand what Teeny Howard was doing in the main story and even what I guess Leia Williams is doing in this in this second story, I guess. But it, to me, it's, uh, it's, it's artificially inflating the importance of Harley Quinn to ridiculous lengths. And I realize it's a ridiculous character, but that's part of my criticism is the ridiculousness of Harley Quinn. Our writers always seem to get away with, okay, if they write her ridiculously, well, it's Harley Quinn, you can do that. If you try to write her seriously, well, it's Harley, we can do that. Uh, if we, you can write her however you want and it doesn't have to make sense because it's Harley. And I would always write Harley with more of a realistic bend as simply a woman who is, she's psychologically scarred, she's screwed up, she's she's a basket case on multiple levels. Write, write her as somebody who suffers, who is in fact mentally ill or psychotic or sociopathic. That, that to me would be the more consistent approach. But you don't do that. And as a result, I'm always lost 
I'm always lost whenever Harley Quinn is written by anybody. I'm always wondering, okay, what's this writer going to do? Because they're approaching her like, you know, what version of Harley are they writing now? And I'm not sure if this is, are we supposed to take this kind of seriously now? Are we like, I really, really don't ever, ever want to reach a point where we, we have an event where Harley Quinn is in any way, shape or form the, the centerpiece of it. Quite frankly, I think it would be a disaster. Uh, uh, but, you know, but anyways, I, I, I shouldn't, I, I almost feel bad saying that because I, I may have jinxed it and we might actually get something like that. If you thought Night Terrors was, wait till we get a Harley centered event. But in any event, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just glad, <laughs> I'm just glad this, 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 you know, I want to move on from Night Terrors. Okay. Keep on going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of, kind of, kind of have to sort of feel like, Harley works best if somebody has a chance to to do like a long form <laughs> story with her. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. As opposed to this idea that you know somebody comes in for ten issues and move on or what have you. I mean, think about how long it took to establish Harley as the the character that she currently is. Mm. Um, you know, it took it took a long time. It took a long time for Jimmy and Amanda to do that. So, um. Yeah, maybe, maybe you need to think about writing her or letting somebody have a longer run. I guess is is how we put it. So, uh, all right. Well, moving on. Dark Knights of Steel number twelve, written by Tom Taylor. Art is by Yasmin Putri. Colors by Arif Prianto. Letters by Wes Abbott. Been waiting for the end of this one forever. It feels like. What did you think? I. I enjoyed this. I gotta. I gotta be honest. I was a little bit worried because I. Uh, I, I still maintain that Tom Taylor is better at writing out of continuity stories than he is stories in the mainstream DC universe. I find his Nightwing and his uh, Titan stories, plot wise, to be exceptionally boring, boring, boring. Uh, high character points every now and then, but. When you have high character points in service of a story that's boring, it just doesn't matter. His soup, John Ken, Adventures of Superman, boring. You know, I mean, who would have thought 18 issues and he only, John Kent only hits, hits something once. I mean, just, just not bore, just not action packed enough. And I was really worried that Dark Knights, that this Dark Knights of Steel would end on a boring, uh, character heavy note as opposed to being, exciting plot wise because tom taylor is really good at doing plots when he puts his mind to it i still think of injustice deceased and dark knights of steel at the beginning i, I wanted this to end on a high note i'm happy to report at least in my view that's what happened here we got great character moments and we got a great plot i like the plot sequences here i like the pacing i like the fact that we got the the kingdom of thunder the the kingdom of l we got the amazons con represented by constantine the harley quinn and lois lane being the three the advisors to the three kingdoms uh with uh queen laura queen ivy and um the queen of the kingdom of thunder that they all team up in, uh and they're protecting themselves against an alien attack of, of white martians the white martians who are secretly working with amanda waller amanda waller being the advisor to queen laura and uh wow I was not disappointed. I love the action sequences here. This was really genuinely action packed. I thought it was so well done. 
I like the I like the the battle sequences when the Amazons are attacked by the White Martians. I like the fact that uh, I like the fact that Queen Laura and uh, Queen Diana uh, and Princess Diana they they erupt a volcano that reference back to issue one when uh, when the when the elves when Jor-El and Laura came to landed on the on the planet they they saved the they saved the kingdom of El from the volcano or they they saved the kingdom. Of, of of the Waynes from the volcano, well they they now erupt the volcano and there's literally there's there's literally a a rain of fire upon the White Martians in order to help defeat them, and it's just it's just great action sequences and uh, we got we got uh, so much um, we've got betrayals as well. Uh, I met you know the. the of course, Amanda Waller, who betrays, I mean, it ends on, it ends establishing a status quo that as much as you hate Amanda Waller, uh, Chase, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts because I thought the way this establishes Amanda Waller as getting away with being a traitor, but not being found out, her treachery not being found out, even after the loss, the tragic loss of Alfred at the end of this issue with uh, Batman coming into his own discovering his powers sensing the the the, the death the fear, fiery death of alfred uh who's a, who's a white martian uh, i thought it worked so well uh, I, my favorite scene was diana saying to the white martians which one of you bastards killed my mother <laughs> and upon finding out chopping off half his head i mean this this is wonder woman as an amazon here you know kicking ass taking names i just thought you know for i mean this thing was uh and how many pages was this i think this was this was 30 pages long uh, and approximately, and it, it ends with establishing a status quo. You've got a tenuous alliance between the Amazons, uh, between the, the, the Kingdom of El and um, uh, the Kingdom of Thunder, I guess. And, and you also, and, and te- it teases the Kingdom of the Frozen Lands uh, and the Ocean Kingdom and it breaks up the machinations of a Waller who was who was conspiring with the uh, Protex, the White Martian, and we know that moving forward, that on this particular Earth, there's, there's there's this tenuous status quo that now exists. This is ripe for future storytelling, whether it's Tom Taylor or anybody else. It's the perfect status quo. In, in many ways, it's the Game of Thrones version of the the kind of character. Uh, reflections that we see on the mainstream DC universe, and I think it works, but it brings its own sense of uniqueness to to uh, to the forefront. And I I'm I, I think this is going to read fantastic as a trade, better as a trade because there was delays with this final issue, too long a delay, I think. But I think I hope they collect this as a twelve issue. If they, I hope they collect this as a hardcover with all twelve issues, as opposed to two six issue hardcovers, which is I think ridiculous. But I, I'd like to see a twelve issue hardcover of this because this will definitely be on my buy list. Uh, I, I enjoyed this. I, I really did enjoy this overall. I think this is destined to be an ever evergreen uh, collection, uh, in my in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, I thought it's unfortunate because this title started off and I was, I was kind of lukewarm about it. Um, but it, and again, coming off the success of DCs for Tom Taylor, it, this really did work, right? In terms of really capturing people's imagination and this idea of a you know, medieval version of the DC universe and what have you. So, you know, on that, on that level, it worked. We, you and I both didn't necessarily see this idea of the Martians uh, being the 
the villains, the white Martians being the villains, that felt like a bit of a surprise. Wasn't expecting that. So that was enjoyable. Um, but you know, you mentioned the delays and I think, I think for me, that's where, that's where the problems lie. Like this series lost so much momentum when you got down to like the last, the last half of it, maybe the last five to six issues. And it just, it felt like it just took so long to come out that it, it just lost any sort of flow. It's, it's hard enough to, to keep the excitement going and, and this feeling of, especially when you're establishing a sort of a new status quo, a new corner of the DCU, it's a little easier to keep the flow going when you're talking about the main DC universe and, uh, you know, it, it, people have a good idea of, of kind of what that is and, you know, how it's established and what have you. So it, it works a little better when you're, when you're doing something new, I think it's, it's tougher. It's tougher to make that work. And, you know, having delays, I don't want to say it's inexcusable because, you know, it does happen. It's, it's part of modern comic storytelling in, in a lot of ways. Uh, unfortunately, uh, just the nature of the, the industry these days, it, it's a little unfortunate. But yeah, the, I, I'm going to look back on the series and think of it as as wasted potential. I mean, it's clear with the, this establishment of the League, as uh, they call it, when uh, these different kingdoms get together, um, you know, that that it's basically the analog for, for the Justice League, right? Um, and, and yeah, Waller did get away with and it's completely despicable, and I don't know how anybody could make the argument at all that Amanda Waller is not a, a villain in every corner of the DCU at this point. Um, she's just <laughs> uh, just a pile of dog crap in my mind, um, but that's what she's supposed to be. So, yeah, it, for me, this is just wasted potential, um, and I, I can't go back, unfortunately. Like, I could go back and read it all in one sitting as a trade, and I think it it would probably read better, as you mentioned, and I probably would enjoy it. But you can't go back and capture that initial excitement that was there when you were reading these, you know, new for the first time, um, and and people were excited about it and people were talking about it. That that's what you lose, right? You lose, you lose the excitement, you lose the the word of mouth and what have you when it takes so long to come out between between issues. And and I get that. Tom didn't. Tom Taylor didn't. My understanding is he he didn't want a different artist to to fill in. He wanted Yasmin Putri to to do it all, and that that's admirable. I, you know, I think there's value in that. Um, but it's just unfortunate when when somebody slows down. You know, I don't know circumstances or life happened or or whatever. But it's just yeah, it's just unfortunate. It it's unfortunate that, that the way things are set up, they can't. DC Comics can't just say, okay, we're going to have a 12-issue series. We're going to have this one person draw it until it's done, and then we'll put it on the release schedule, right? Like, it just it just doesn't work. Like, you have to have money coming in the whole time, which means you have to have books coming out the whole time. You can't, you can't take long breaks or what have you. So, yeah. yeah, like I said, just a little bit unfortunate because the series did have a lot of potential. And well, unfortunately... I, I just- 
I think we should end on a note of optimism because there's lots of series from Doomsday uh, Clock, for example, to Watchmen, where there's people forget about the delay, delays in the long run. You know, I, this well, is for a series that, yeah. for, for new readers. For this that, is worth worth buying for any new reader. This is absolutely, I think, an uh, an easy buy, an easy recommend for all twelve issues. Yeah, I mean, for anybody who hasn't read it at all, they're not going to care, right? They're picking it up the first time in trade. That's their only exposure to it. Um, they're not going to care that it, it was delayed because for them it wasn't, right? They didn't read it till the whole thing was out, and that's fine. That worked for them. Um, but, yeah, for, for me, that's unfortunately what I'm going to – at least right now. That may change down the line. You know, I may reread it a year from now or whatever and just absolutely love it, but – um, it's hard to be excited about all the hints that are dropped about things to come with the series and in this world that he's established <laughs> when everything was so up in the air, you know, like, well, who knows if, we, if we're going to get more, but it's going to come way, way later. You know, I don't want to say what's the point, but I feel like what's, <laughs> what's the point. Yeah. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Batman Brave and the Bold, number four. Uh, has three stories. Enter the Abyss from Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing as writers. Kelly Jones handles the art. Michelle Madsen on colors. Rob Lee on letters. The Stormwatch story <coughs> is uh, Down with the Kings, part four. Ed Brisson is the writer. Pasquale Colano handles the art. Yvonne Placenti on colors. Seda Timofanti on letters. Uh, Harcourt, Second Life, part one, part one from Rob Williams as the writer. Stefano Landini on art. Antonio Fabella on colors. And Simon Bullen on letters. And finally, Batman black and white story called My Family from Megan Fitzmartin as the writer, Belin Ortega on art, and Pat Brosso on letters. So to kick us off with The Abyss, what are your thoughts? Well, Enter the Abyss, written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. What's interesting about this particular story is that it actually, it continues in Batman Beyond, uh, Batman Beyond Neo-Gothic number one. Well, we're going to be reviewing Batman Beyond Neo-Gothic issue two this week, but this is actually a prequel to Batman Beyond Neo Gothic, and what's uh, and so that was uh, I, I was really surprised to discover that at the end here, and essentially this story, which was uh, beautifully illustrated by Kelly Jones, which is I think one of probably one of my favorite artists for Batman in terms of whenever you want to draw Batman battling the the the, the mysterious or the or the magical or the mythological, Kelly Jones just has a way of drawing even horror like magical elements and. And in this particular one, Batman sort of just comes upon this woman by the name of Jane Doe. Obviously, that's not her real name, but she's sort of the embodiment of sort of like a like a vampire. She attracts darkness. And there's this ephemeral dark garden underneath Gotham City. And it's it's kidnapping. It's it, it you know, it's kidnapping apparently like 17 different children. A number of uh, number of citizens of Gotham have been kidnapped. And in this particular story. Colin Rowe, who's the brother of Harper Rowe, Bluebird, ends up being kidnapped after he goes after one of his uh, dates. He ends up being kidnapped and Batman is basically looking for him. And Batman and this Jane, this Jane Doe, or pardon me, Jane Smith, I apologize, Jane Smith, uh, who was... It's it's unclear what her origin is, but I think she was born in a dark garden and the, the garden was sort of like her cage. And she used her power to leave the darkness of the garden and to enter our world. And um, uh, the dark realm could not pull Jane back into it. So it, it, it constantly 
stole what all the people that Jane cared about. So Jane Smith has been alive for centuries from the origins of Gotham. And over the centuries, the dark garden beneath Gotham was sort of stealing all the people that this Jane Smith loved. And this dark garden is beneath the city and it takes and it sort of plays with its food and it's, and it's just a horrible sort of vampiric sort of darkness. And ultimately, James, with the help of Batman, uh, managed to, you know, I guess temporarily defeat the darkness. Batman escapes the darkness uh, and brings Colin Rowe back to the surface level of Gotham while Jane Smith stays within the the caves and the underneath world underworld of Gotham in order to in order to keep the dark gar- garden at bay and the dark garden and Jane will be will uh, ultimately I'm, I'm assuming this this dark garden is is playing itself out in the current pages of Gotham of Batman Beyond because what happened in the first issue of Batman Beyond which we've already reviewed is that people are being kidnapped in Neo Gotham and Terry McGinnis along with this new cat boy is is being uh, they're looking for these missing children in Batman Beyond that are sort of being hidden within the the bowels or the, the underground of Gotham City and this is the origin of that because in Batman Beyond as we'll get to Terry McGinnis is, is saying to himself Bruce what the hell did you do what did you you know part of the mystery now is linked to what's going on here and Batman ultimately defeats the or holds the darkness at bay in this particular first story, and uh, Jane Smith ends up being swallowed by the this sort of dark, this dark garden, and she may or may not end up appearing in Batman Beyond. But we got to remember that Kelly, uh, Kelly and Lansing are both are the writers of this story, and they're also the writers of Batman Beyond. So it's it's understandable that the story is linked. So, what do you think of the first story? Uh, I wasn't a huge fan. I've never been a big fan of Kelly Jones art. Um, and you, you would think that there'd be a little bit of nostalgia for me there, but I, I didn't even think this art was as clean as his, or as good as his art back in the day. Um, but you know, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm nitpicking, um, because it, it is moody and it is recognizable as Kelly Jones. And it, there is some aesthetic there and it does suit the, sort of dark story that's being told. Um, I, I will say this story carries a lot more weight. I'm glad I knew before I read it that it tied in. Um, I actually read a, a Twitter post, I think that Jansig posted, and he, he explains the story of how this happened. Like it just, it wasn't planned at all, right? They wrote this story, uh, Jackson and Colin wrote the, the, the story that's in Batman Brave and the Bold number four. They wrote it ye- literally years ago years ago before they ever knew they were going to interesting at some point be writing Batman beyond. Right. So when they, they wrote Bath, Batman beyond Neo year, it did well in sales. They asked them to do a follow-up series. They were like looking for ideas. Hey, what if we have some people, some kids disappear in far in the future? Uh, remember that thing that we created garden of darkness or whatever it was for that Batman story that we did that never got published. What if we, you know, we mentioned that it comes back every so often in Gotham history. What if we have it come back in Batman Beyond Neo Year, you know, Gothic, uh, the sequel, and yeah, we'll play around with that. So that's that's what they've gone with, right? Uh, This idea of people disappearing, and we know Terry's down in the bowels of the city. We're going to Neo Year number two here in a second. Um, 
but it keeps going deeper and deeper and it finds out there's still more and more layers below. Um, and yeah, we, we now know that he's heading down into this garden, garden of darkness. Um, so that's what their plan was. So then in the meantime, this, this inventory story, the story that they wrote, um, that had the original, the original idea of Batman, Bruce Wayne taking on the garden, um, they, DC actually needed to use the inventory story because the the main stories in Batman Beyond or the first story right now is supposed to be or, or Batman Brave and the Bold rather it's supposed to be the Tom King Mitch Garrett's uh, Joker story but and I don't <coughs> don't begrudge DC for doing this they're delaying it a little bit and I, I hate that they have to do this because uh, again I think it robs the story of momentum but. The work is amazing, so they want to give him the time that he needs to do it correctly. Uh, and so they needed they needed something to put in here. And they said, oh, well, what about the story that Jackson and Colin did about this garden? So it just so happened that it lines up where this issue of Brave and the Bold with their first Batman story is coming out on the same day as Batman uh, New Year Gothic 2 is coming out. And it, it, it's uh, uh, neo gothic is coming out, and it, we're getting these clues that, yeah, it's the the Garden of Darkness or, or whatever. So that, that's absolutely crazy that it lined up that way. Um, couldn't plan it out, but uh, interesting what they've what they've done. Yeah. Uh, the second story, the Stormwatch story, uh, probably my least favorite of the Stormwatch stories that have come out so far. I thought the art was pretty solid, um, but yeah, this is basically Stormwatch Night Terrors, um, and so I, you know, I feel about it the same way I feel about a lot of the Night Terrors stuff. Like nothing that happens here really, I won't say really matters, but I don't know how much it's going to play into the Stormwatch story going forward. Other than there are some of the doubts that. Um, that Flint has about director bones that are being, that she that sort of manifested themselves or were brought a little closer to her attention. Maybe they were in her subconscious or whatever. And she does confront director bones at the end on the final page saying, who, who are we really working for? Other than that, it doesn't really seem like anything that happens in the story really um, is going to have any sort of long lasting effects, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. But, it definitely was my least favorite of the of the stories. So much favorite, but it was my least favorite this time of the the books and the issue. So, what are your thoughts about Stormwatch? Uh, yeah, definitely my least favorite as well. I I was I was you know Ed Brisson is usually somebody who is uh, I mean he's he's done a great fantastic job with Batman Incorporated and he's I, I've really enjoyed his Stormwatch so far. This was a miss, and once again, it's a miss because he's got to he's got to try to fit night make this into a night terrors issue, which frankly I think he could have bypassed. I don't think it would have been hard for him to have just sort of narratively skipped over that but i guess it's kind of hard when it was incorporated in the story i mean literally all, all the individual characters course uh flint phantom one shadow uh they all they all basically have they're fighting different versions of their nightmare and and that's it blah man you know there's there's an interesting rep, uh there's an interesting bit of dialogue by phantom one in his nightmare where he says uh where phantom one says to to his nightmare that your mind games don't hold a candle uh, to my uh, to uh, basically 
Ghostmaker's ability to make me feel that I don't matter. So, you know, it reinforces the fact that that Phantom One doesn't feel appreciated by Ghostmaker. So maybe that's interesting for those who maybe don't know a lot about Phantom One. Uh, but beyond that, there, 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 I think Ed Brisson w- was trying to tell us something about this Flint character, but it was completely lost on me. I know nothing about Flint and her nightmare, and she ends up having a con, you know, a nightmare. It says, "Think of your mother, your father. We save our lives fighting oppressors, men like those who you work for, a cancer that you've helped to spread." I'm not sure who her parents are. And so I guess she her nightmare is that her parents will think that she chose, that she made a poor choice working for Director Bones for Stormwatch. And whoever it was in her nightmare tells her to question who it is that she's really working for. And at the end of the issue, Flint goes to Director Bones and confronts him and basically says, you know, hey, tell me, I want to know the truth. Who the hell, you know, who, who, who are we really working for? And of course, uh, it's fair to say Stormwatch is really working for Amanda Waller. Director Bones is likely really working for Amanda Waller. Uh, and we're going to see a lot of Amanda Waller. We saw her in, in Dark Knights of Steel. We were going to, you know, Amanda Waller is pulling the strings here. Amanda Waller is pulling the strings, is pulling the strings in Doom Patrol that we'll get to. She's pulling the strings already for Peacemaker and, and uh, Suicide Squad. She's pulling the strings on Earth 3. We know she's pulling the strings and the offer she made to all the supervillains by saying, by offering a pardon to any supervillain that can kill a hero. Uh, she's also uh, controlling the strings in the Penguin issue one, which we're also going to be reviewing this week. And um, she's also pulling the strings in the next story we're going to review in this, and that is uh, Harcourt. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what did you uh, what did you think of these uh, the third story here, Harcourt, uh, a Second Life? You know, my first rule as editor in chief at DC would be no Amanda Waller. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't even put a hiatus on the Joker. I don't care. Joker in every book. I don't care. No Amanda Waller. Nobody is allowed to use Amanda Waller. Period. Yeah. Well, you, you got to wonder be- what's what's the fascination with Amelia Harcourt though? Like, did she exist in DC Comics before? Or was this are they doing this as a favor to James Gunn and uh, because of the Peacemaker series? No. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I actually had to go look it up myself. Right. I was like, <laughs> yeah. What? Why? Wait. Is she the? Because I didn't watch Peacemaker. I don't know. Was she in the Suicide Squad movie, or oh, is she only uh, in the Peacemaker TV series? She, she's in the Peacemaker TV series. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So for those that don't know, she this is written by Rob Williams. Rob Williams had a run on Suicide Squad. He was the writer on Suicide Squad uh, for DC Rebirth, and Jim Lee was the artist. Now, obviously, Jim Lee didn't stick with it that long or whatever, but... Jim Lee did draw the issue where uh, Amelia Harcourt first appeared uh, as kind of a an assistant, if you will, to uh, Amanda Waller. So she she did debut in the comics first, and then um, in in I guess the Peacemaker TV show later. So she is a popular character. I, I think the actress, if I'm not mistaken, the actress that plays her. Yeah, in the series is James Gunn's girlfriend or something? Or fiance, I believe so. Yes, but but she's yeah. a gr- she's a great actress in her own right, though she did. Yeah. She's really- I mean, I have no idea if she was his. They were in a relationship before, if that had any bearing in her getting the role. Like I, I know nothing about it, other than yeah, I saw him post pictures with her, where it was clear that 
I was like, well, that's inappropriate. And then uh, unless they're actually together. So, yeah. Anyway, anyway, so yeah, I think this is this is DC trying to capitalize a little bit on the peace, the Peacemaker uh, TV series. It's a very short story, um, but it's interesting. So somebody's killed Amelia Harcourt. Amanda Waller has used the Lazarus Pit to revive her. Wants her to basically do her bidding, as Amanda Waller wants everyone to do, and is holding the fact that. Amanda Waller has access to the Lazarus Pits and thus literally has control over whether Amelia Harcourt lives or dies and is using that to uh, get her to do whatever Amanda Waller wants her to do. So, I mean, again, that's not just despicable and something, you know, that only a pile of dog crap would do. I don't know. I don't know what is, you know, literally (laughs) threatening someone's life. Um, you know, threaten somebody, somebody with death. You know, I'll send you back to, back to hell. L- literally, will send you back to hell if you don't do what I tell you. I mean, yeah. I'm uh, over Amanda Waller at this point. Really am. Yeah. Um, I uh, th- There's a new saying here that she says, uh, I-, I thought I had it written down here uh because Amanda Waller is blackmailing, uh, is blackmailing Amelia Earhart, uh, Earhart, Amelia Harcourt, and uh, <laughs> and she also infuses Amelia Earhart. Not just it's not just Lazarus, the Lazarus pit that revives her, but the, the Amanda Waller has her scientists uh, infuse her with Lazarus energy to give Amelia Earhart Harcourt superpowers of some kind, and we're not really sure what they is, but some sort of energy force or energy blast that. Amelia can access and uh, interesting hints as to Amelia's origins. It, it's almost as if Amelia's father taught her to murder people. So her, her own Amelia uh, Harcourt has a flashback and her dad, you know, is watching her shoot bottles. And then uh, uh, after, you know, she's, she's a really good marksman, even as a young child, and then asks her to help him, you know, kill one of his friends. And so it, it really so it hints that Amelia Harcourt is in fact a, a a badass and is is because she's such a badass it makes sense that uh, Amanda Waller would want to uh, would want to use her for her own uh, for her own uh, machinations and uh, and the whole point of this particular issue is in order to maybe get Amelia's blood flowing. At, Amanda Waller tells her who murdered her. We don't know who murdered Amelia, Amelia, but uh, Amelia does enter into a, a club, uh, enters into sort of a, a, a club that's normally uh, the patrons are normally supervillains and it's Club 5390 and she's going to go there to kill the person who murdered her. And so that will happen in likely part two. But uh, interesting, and once again, we see more of the machinations and the, the deviousness of Amanda Waller. But it's nice to see Amelia Harcourt because she is kind of a cool character on the series, and I'm I'm glad she's back. Yeah, she's really interesting and great art in that uh, issue as well. The last story, of Megan Fitzmartin, I I felt like I had read it before, um, black and white. So I, I looked it up. Batman Black and White story was this a story we've seen before? It's not. It's a new story actually. Um, but it, it does explore some themes that we've uh, that we've seen before. And that is namely the death of uh, Bruce Wayne's parents and how it's traumatized him. 
Uh, I think everybody knows that by now. Uh, but also the the strength of family, the strength of the Batman family, much like I was talking about with the Superman family earlier, um, that's displayed really well here uh, narratively by Megan Fitzmartin. But really, for me, the point of this story is a chance for Belen Ortega's art to really shine, um, unencumbered by any sort of color or anything like that. Um, she's a fantastic artist because uh, she gives us some gorgeous line work, great emotion, really impactful panels, great camera work, moving in and around, zooming in and out. Um, and a lot of characters too, you know, we've got the whole bat family here taking on Bane. Um, so yeah, I was, I was really impressed with the artwork here. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, yeah, it actually reminded me of uh, Joshua Williamson's Night Terrors issue two, where Joshua Williamson had Batman confront his younger self, telling his younger self that everything's going to be okay. You're going to grow up and you're going to have super friends and heroes. And, and in this one, Batman is Batman and the Bat family are in danger of being defeated by Bane and Hush. So Batman both has a physical uh, is, is physically beaten as well as psychologically beaten by Hush. But he wins the day because of family. And while he's unconscious, He's sort of he's imagining talking to his younger self where he tells his younger self uh, sort of, again, similar to the Williamson story that, you know, everything's going to be OK and that he gets his strength and he, he almost sees his parents as giving him a new family as a source of his strength against all his enemies. And so even though he lost his parents, he did gain a second family because of their loss. So the idea being that even from the greatest tragedy can can arise your greatest triumphs and and so in that respect i don't know which story came first and it doesn't matter whether it's megan fitzmartin or joshua williamson's i will say that this is by far the best megan fitzmartin story i have ever read in anything she's written at dc and i thought this was very very well written i thought this was good i thought she's got a, an understanding of batman that in my view i wish she had similar uh, in-depth understanding of other characters that she's written but i i will i got to give credit to megan fitzmartin i i did enjoy this I, it was very well done and the art by uh Bella ortega is really good i think she does have an understanding to the same depth i just think you don't agree with her interpretation <laughs> well, that would be an understatement my friend <laughs> which is fine specifically yeah. tim drake but whatever uh, okay, well, now we're on to the aforementioned Batman Beyond Neo-Gothic issue number two from writers Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, Max Dunbar on art, Sebastian Chang on colors, Hassan Otsman Elhal on letters. We got to see last time the uh, Batman Beyond version of Killer Croc, which apparently it's still Waylon um, Jones. I almost said Waylon Jennings, who's <laughs> a country music singer. Waylon Jones. Uh, he's grown quite large in the ensuing years. He almost looks like a dinosaur at this point, which, yeah, I don't know. It's not necessarily explained how he's gotten so big. Um, but yeah, he's, he's down in the bowels of Gotham and, uh, Terry McGinnis along with the cat boy, Kyle are, are searching for these lost children and, that's just uh, Waylon Jones is just one of the obstacles that they're they're faced with as they continue to go down, 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 as I mentioned, lower and lower into the, the depths of Gotham. We know they'll end up in the garden. Uh, whether Terry has enough darkness in him to be able to uh, to defeat the garden the way Bruce did, I guess we'll see. Will we see Jane Smith? Is she still around? I guess we'll see. And then the other part of the story uh, focuses on Bean Boonma, former G 
Gotham City police officer, and uh, her confronting uh, Donovan Lumos and his continuing machinations to try to gain power in, in Gotham. So a bit of a transitional issue, um, getting all the pieces in place to see what comes next. Uh, the whole idea of Lumos creating hard light buildings. Would you want to live in a hard light building? I would not want to live in a hard light building. And for those of you yeah. that don't know what that is, is this future technology where you're basically projecting light, but it's light that is like so powerful that it's, it's, it's hardened. So it's like, you know, a hard surface. So this building is effectively uh, made out of light, but you know, many, many stories tall. What, what happens if the batteries go out, you know, or the power source or whatever, the light yeah. turns off. Uh, it seems like it would be bad if you're a hundred stories off the ground. Well, it also, I also thought it was funny that Lumos is saying this and, and he's looking and he's got a shitty and evil grin on his face. I'm thinking, I'm like, well, what's, what's bad about that? I mean, first of all, it's, as you said, it's a dumb idea. It's a dumb idea, but it doesn't sound like an evil idea. I mean, he's, he's actually housing the homeless. At least it sounds like that's what he's doing. So it's a stupid idea because who wants a building of light? But I'm, I'm still not clear how this is an evil thing. And then almost there's an implied suggestion that the, the, the darkness below Gotham, that somehow this is going to be in conflict with the darkness under Gotham. But the darkness under Gotham is evil, isn't it? And so is, are, there, are Lansing and Kelly doing a, a bait and switch that light is actually evil and the darkness becomes good? I, I'm, I was a little bit confused by that in terms of narratively where they're going with that. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see, but uh, I'm glad that Bean, uh, Beam Boonma is still part of the story. And, and yeah, Donovan Lumos, very interesting character. Yeah, um, and uh, so, I, sh yeah. I, should, I should add that I like that Catboy. Catboy actually is revealed to be a magician or almost to be some kind of sorcerer. And I like that Terry McGinnis of Batman Beyond sort of makes some comment about magic. Of course, magic is real. <laughs> so this is yeah. the first. Uh, I don't. I'm not an expert on. I, I'm not an expert on Batman Beyond history. It was never really a character I, I read a lot about. So to my knowledge, Catboy is Catboy the first magical creature, the magical character in the Batman Beyond mythology. I don't know. That's the impression I got from what. Batman Beyond said, but people, readers can maybe correct me on that. I don't know, but I thought, uh, I thought this was, uh, I thought this was well done. And I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the fact that we, you know, clearly people, the people of Gotham are uh, detective, former detective uh, Bean Boonma, Boonma is, you know, talking to people who have lost loved ones who've been kidnapped and, and have been lost in the, in the bowels of Gotham and, and the reveal at the end that, the tomb, the tomb that apparently Batman, modern day Batman, created a tomb to house the, the, the dark garden is this tomb of owls. Is that related to the tomb, or to the court of owls, this tomb of owls? I thought that's a very curious name, the tomb of owls. And uh, in any event, uh, you know, kudos to uh, Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Uh, Max Dunbar on the art does a good job. Uh, you know, really a killer croc, giant killer croc looks very intimidating. Even the city of light of this Loomis, it, it, you know, the, the coloring just sort of pops off the page. It, it, it seems relatively well done. And I'm curious as to this light versus darkness, where that's how that's going to play out in terms of maybe that's going to be a bait and switch, like I said. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. But, uh, you know, this is, you know, I, I, I'm enjoying this, I'm, I, which I 
I've never been into Batman Beyond before. It was Jackson. It was Kelly and uh, Lansing is what got me into it in their first series. Uh, just the well, whatever that was like last year. So I'm curious to see where this goes. Yeah, Batman Beyond Neo Year. I'm really my first regular reading of uh, Batman Beyond as well. Um, yeah, I shout out to uh, Max Dunbar, the artist. You mentioned how fantastic the art is, but also Sebastian Chang on colors, man. Especially when you're drawing hard light and Donovan Lumos, who's you know got the white skin and very bright, glowing, lots of blue, bright blues uh, as are cool, cool blues, I guess you'd say, like uh, you know not a deep blue, but like a bright bluish white um it's just fantastic color work uh all right up next tom king writes the penguin rafael della tora is the artist marcelo maella on colors clayton cowell on letters brian boland does a fantastic uh variant cover as does uh, david marquez yeah this a little bit of spiritual tie-in to uh, batman killing time we do see the same same agent that was shot in the face at the end of Killing Time shows up here, uh, and it references Killing Time at one point. Um, but what'd you think of this? I I thought this was uh, straight up. I thought this was masterful. I thought this was absolutely masterful. I I had some concerns because I got to tell you, I know this is this is within mainstream continuity. I've always been nervous with Tom King writes anything that is obviously in con- continuity. Uh, but Batman Killing Time, I enjoyed that. This is clearly uh, some references to Batman Killing Time. I was not a fan of ba- Tom King's Batman run, and I was not a fan of Heroes in Crisis like so many. Uh, but I've, I've pretty much loved everything else that Tom King has done. And this one here, what what Tom King manages to do here, I mean, he goes back and forth between different time periods. It, the, the, the issue starts off with Batman and Penguin Sometime in the, uh, you know, approximately uh, a year, uh, well, well, approximately, I guess in present day, Batman and Penguin are literally trapped in the Batmobile, sinking in, in, in the lake or in the ocean, Gotham Harbor, I'm assuming. And Batman is incapacitated. All his fail safes are done. They're drowning. And, and Batman can't believe, is commenting to himself, he can't believe that, that, he doesn't know how Penguin pulled it off. Now, what did Penguin pull off? No one's really sure. But we do know from the flashback, and we know from what we know of the Penguin over the last year, that the Penguin faked his own death, and he basically fled, and he moved to Metropolis, and he basically opened a flower shop, and his his children took over the the, the family business of crime and corruption, being a, being a mafioso crime family in Gotham. Meanwhile, Oswald Cobblepot is a basically... He's in Metropolis and he has a flower shop. And and what, what Tom King does masterfully here, and I had to count them, but there's multiple narrators throughout this issue. There's no less than six narrators. Batman is, does some of the narration. The, uh, there's the tailor, Co- Co- Oswald Cobblepot's tailor does some of the narration. Rita Wells, this woman who Oswald Cobblepot, her, his lover, this beautiful veterinarian <laughs> brunette, uh, who says Oswald Cobblepot isn't a player. My God, how he managed to nail her, I don't know, but good on him. He had this, has this gorgeous uh, woman who apparently loves him, and they have a, they actually have a passionate relationship. Uh, she she does some narrating. Uh, the flower shop customer does some narration. Agent Neri Espinosa, who we saw in Batman. Killing Time does some narrating. And Amanda Waller herself 
crops up at the end and does some narration when the penguin is picked up by Agent Espinosa uh, and is interrogating Penguin. Uh, this is we, we get so much information in terms of what is going on. And what's what's interesting here is that Oswald Cobblepot does seem to be someone who he's trying to fit in. He's a guy, he's being followed by Agent Espinosa. And he's he's someone who is a, Agent Espinosa intentionally sends an undercover cop to uh to to Oswald to try to intentionally antagonize him, to get him to lash out, to get him to do something. But uh, Cobblepot just ignores him, insists on being a nice guy, talks calmly to him, literally sits on the bench, feeds the penguins. You know, he you know he just he just wants to live a. He, on the surface, this appears to be a Cobblepot that just wants to enjoy his life. He's given up being uh, a mobster in Gotham, and that's what it is like on the surface. And of course, we as readers were waiting for the shoe to drop. We know that this is not Oswald Cobblepot. Something is going to happen. This is not. Oswald Cobblepot. Well, this Agent Espinosa, who we lost last on Batman Killing Time, the last time we saw her, she got her, she was shot, she was shot in the head by Riddler. Well, it's revealed here, uh, she reveals to uh, Cobblepot when she's interrogating him that she spent five years in recovery. Five years in recovery, basically learning to walk, to physically heal herself. And a strange thing happened to her. Agent Espinosa was somebody who swore all the time. One of the criticisms of Batman Killing Time, with, written by Tom King, was that King made Espinosa swear all the time. She said the four-letter word repeatedly all the time to the point that some readers it annoyed. But it, it, it she, in fact, she, Espinosa embraced it and she became no, known as Agent F <laughs> and and she basically the trauma of overcoming the 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 wound on her face inflicted by the Riddler she gave up swearing she gave up swearing and what's interesting here is that she is uh, she manages to apprehend she manages to locate Oswald Cobblepot and she impresses the hell out of Amanda Waller Amanda Waller even says that this Espinosa reminds Amanda Waller of her younger self. And so Agent Espinosa has managed to impress Amanda Waller and Amanda Waller basically, hey man, that's a, this is a pretty good thing. We we managed to capture uh, Oswald, uh, Oswald Cobblepot and they want to use Oswald Cobblepot. They want to reinstate him into Gotham, you're going to go back to Gotham Penguin. You're going to you're going to take over the mafia again. You're going to be the top dog, and you're going to be controlled by us. In other words, it's Amanda Waller through Agent Espinosa playing her games again, wanting to control everything. This is Amanda Waller playing that game, and throughout it all, as Agent Espinosa is talking about her past and almost giving us her origin, Oswald Cobblepot is completely silent. And what's brilliant about it, and this is a uh, kudos to. Um, uh, artist um, uh, Raffaella Della Torre, just amazing with the Mar Marcelo Mio on the colors that you can see, you can just see how calm the penguin is. And you can see through the narration of Amanda Waller that they, you know, uh, or rather, actually it's a narration of uh, Agent Neri Espinosa. She basically says that this guy, this is the penguin not to be underestimated. This is a guy that's managed throughout all kinds of scenarios while Batman's fighting crisis after crisis. Somehow the Peng Penguin always manages to stay in power. He's managed to kill multiple people. He manages to stay ahead of his enemies, including Batman. And he, he somehow always manages to stay up top. And, and, and what's incredible about it is 
he doesn't say a word to Adrian Espinosa. He just he's interrogated. He gets up. He calmly walks out. He's been he's been told what he has to do. They expect him to do it, and and per, and uh, you, you got to feel so bloody well sorry for uh, the Penguins' Taylor because he takes out his frustrations on his Taylor, <laughs> who had the audacity of suggesting that Cobblepot had maybe gained some weight since his last visit to the to the Taylor shop, and. Uh, in, in my favorite scene, one of my favorite scenes in this entire comic is when Agent Espinoza realizes just how powerful the Penguin is. And what's what's incredible about that is Penguin didn't say a single word. Other, uh, uh, you know, he mocked her a few times, but beyond that, he almost said nothing. And she she realizes that the Penguin got one up on her, really, and she she fin- she swears. And so... Five years of therapy for Agent Espinosa is destroyed with one meeting with the Penguin and she goes back to swearing again. And you could understand why because we all know the Penguin and we all know the violent Penguin. This Penguin is back in full glory because Amanda Waller, you can pretty much blame Amanda Waller, pulling... Uh, the Penguin back. I'm reminded of Godfather 3, the words of Al Pacino's uh, Godfather character, you know, saying, you know, just when I try to get out, they pull me back in, you know. And uh, I just, I thought this was, I thought this was really good. And uh, and then, of course, we, we come back to the present where it looks like Batman is, is with the Penguin and they're sinking uh, under the ocean or in the lake. How are they going to get out of that? But uh, I'm really curious because Penguin, uh, the Batman asks at the end, you know, Penguin, how did you do this? What did you do? And I am, I am so curious as to what happened here. I'm, I'm so, so looking forward to this. I think that Tom King has gotten better as a, a writer in terms of he, if he can channel some of his great storytelling that he put into Gotham Year, Gotham City Year One which I thought was a fantastic noir-like tale. And uh, Tom King has been saying with some degree of ego, well-deserved, that he's really proud of his work here on Penguin. I'm so looking forward to where this is going. And, um, you know, I'm even pleasantly surprised at Wonder Woman, which at some point we're going to review. So I love this, straight up love it, and I highly recommend this. What did you think? Uh, Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um... He did a good job of, of recapping. I don't think he really missed anything that stood out to me. One thing that I'll uh, that I'll comment on, though, and this is the same thing with the Riddler in, in Batman uh, Year Zero that Scott Snyder did, right? It's this idea, we've talked about it many times, the, the power creep of Batman as you know, writers continue to try to one-up themselves um, and Batman has become this incredibly powerful hero, very formidable, even though he doesn't technically have any superpowers. And so as kind of a consequence of that, I mean, you feel like it's a natural extension. His, his villains have to get more formidable as well, right? In order to actually present a challenge for, for Batman. So, you know, the Riddler went from being kind of this jokey guy that would like, like leave clues and dress in a skin tight green suit that had riddles all over it and the purple domino mask and, um, very zany and reminiscent of the Batman 66 uh, TV show to, you know, the smartest man alive and that sort of thing. And maybe the culmination of, of that evolution of the Riddler probably being the, the Batman One Bad Day Riddler one shot from earlier this year by Tom King and, and Mitch Gerrits, which 
without question in my mind is the best Riddler story ever, ever told. (laughs) But a scary Riddler, right? A very formidable Riddler. And now it's almost like Tom King wants to do the same thing with the Penguin, right? Like the Penguin's always been played a little bit as a buffoon, you know, like even when they evolved him beyond just a typical bank robber type to, you know, more of a crime boss and running the Iceberg Lounge casino and, you know, pretending to be legitimate, you know, more more like uh, almost a Kingpin-like character. If you want to think of uh, the Marvel character, Kingpin, where you know he's doing illegal stuff, but you can't really prove anything. You can't pin it on him. Um, and and here we're, we, we're presented with a, a penguin that is, you know, really terrifying in a lot of ways to these agents, right? Amanda Waller doesn't want, even want to, the penguin to know that she's the one pulling the strings when um, Agent Espinosa sends one of her underlings to confront the penguin in the park, you know, bump into him on purpose and then blame it on him or whatever. We're told when the guy and the guy's full of bluster and calling him an old man and whatever, but he knows it's the penguin. He knows how many people the penguin is, um, has killed, how cold hearted the penguin is. He walks away. He's, he's himself. He's so terrified. Right. So th- that to me is something that really stands out because I've never thought of the penguin as somebody that you would be terrified of, <clears throat> especially when he doesn't have his, his trappings around him, you know, doesn't have a bunch of goons or henchmen around him to, uh, to do his, his dirty work. And he's not, he doesn't seem to be somebody who's physically imposing either. Right. Like you might not necessarily be worried, uh, if, if, if you were, conf- you know, stuck in a dark alley with a penguin, not the way you would be if you were stuck in a dark alley with Bane, right? Like Bane doesn't need anybody to handle his uh, physical dirty business. He can, he can handle that himself, but the penguin, uh, well, I guess if he has his umbrella as his tailor, uh, would show you, but it, it's this idea that the penguin's willing to do anything, right? Like just a completely amoral person. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting that DC's decided, yeah, we, we, we need to level up the penguin. You know, he's become a little too, uh, too much of a joke or a punchline. <clears throat> and, and this isn't new, right? This has been coming for a long time. Uh, we talked about it when, uh, was it in the Mariko Tamaki run of detective comics where we saw the penguin he was teaming up with um Um, was the guys the guys whose daughter was was killed can't remember his name he was very physically imposing um but anyway the the penguin was really getting back out on on the streets getting his hands dirty again uh that was sort of the start of this journey that was uh, penguin one bad day wasn't it was that uh, well, no that that was that was Penguin coming back. But if you if you recall, in the Mariko Tamaki run of Wonder Woman, when uh, you had Vile, and he got you, you mean Detective Comics? Yeah, is that not what I said? Did I say you Batman? Said Wonder Woman. You said you oh, said Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Not her Wonder Woman. Yes, her the Detective Mariko Tamaki Detective Comics run. Yeah. Um, when God, what was the guy's name? He was like a big real estate tycoon. And worth his daughter was, was it worth yes yeah. there you go yeah worth was his worth name. and he made a deal with the penguin to try to take out batman and what happened right you. and that was yeah that was the that was really the beginning of dc and we commented on the time we said yeah we feel like dc is trying to to bring an edge back to the penguin um and that that 
that's really, uh, and then that led into Zdarsky's run with Penguin framing uh, Batman for his murder. And then uh, maybe we thought, well, maybe DC's not trying to make the Penguin edgier and more dangerous because they took him off the playing field and put him in Metropolis, you know, owning a flower store. And that, that didn't last very long. Uh, and so now here we are. So, yeah, I'm very curious to see where this goes as well. Will Tom King be able to convince me that the Penguin is somebody, Oswald Cobblepot is somebody that you should be terrified of? I guess we'll see. Uh, all right. Last book we'll talk about in detail uh, on this episode is Unstoppable Doom Patrol, number five of seven. This is written by Dennis Culver. We have art from uh, Chris Burnham. Brian Reber handles the colors. Pat Brosso on letters. Assault on Main Street. Uh, what do you think of this? I Sorry, I just need to... Um... Get my bearings here. I, this was, uh, I wish this was a, a series and not just a mini series. I, Dennis Culver, uh, I, I like, I like the, st- how the story played out here. This, uh, we, we sort of like jump into, we jump into a story where, uh, where the Doom Patrol, they're, they're actually, they're going into the headquarters of, or they're actually uh, entering a city called. Um, uh, I forget the name of this the the name of the city, but it's actually a front for this corporation called uh, the Medigene Corporation, and it's run by this guy named Brian McLean. And this Brian McLean character is became obsessed with uh, Niles Calder, the former chief of the Doom Patrol, because during a, during a, a past Doom Patrol storyline, uh, Niles Calder went sort of psych- psychopathic, a little bit psychotic, and he came up with something called catastrophe theory, which is essentially in mathematics, it's a set of methods used to study and classify ways in which a system can undergo a sudden large change in behavior as one or more variables are continuously changed. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's really simple. Uh, when you take a stable system and you disrupt it in some way, uh, uh, if you if you can, is that predictable? If you can if you can create chaos and control the chaos, can you mathematically control it? Well, when Niles, the chief at one point thought that he could, and part of uh, that and that motivation, that arrogance, that narcissism that Niles Calder had was in played a role in his in his in his leadership abilities of of the doom patrol and and uh, now mclean this mclean this leader of this metagen corporation he uh he comes on board after the lazarus reign he wants to uh u- use his corporate power to find all the people affected by the lazarus reign and create what he calls a golden age for all of humankind essentially he wants the all the people that are affected by the lazarus reign their metagenes are are basically activated and he wants to be, basically control all of them meanwhile as the now obviously niles calder wants to stop them uh, crazy jane Chief Crazy Jane wants to stop him. Doom Patrol wants to stop this guy. And also, uh, this guy, he's working with the Brain and Mala. And this entire town is actually a secret, is actually, this entire town is actually 
consists of people that are of the Medigen Corporation, and it's a trap. The June Patrol are lured to this town uh, as as some as basically they're lured that they're into this trap and because because uh, this McLean character utilized mento mento who was the doom patrol member who's got psychic abilities the McLean had his own psychics feed false information to the doom patrol luring them to this town in any event crazy jane doesn't trust uh niles calder uh and uh, so you got that going on in the background and you got a lot of interesting character work, a lot of great scenes. Chris Burnham on the art really shines. Uh, Brian Reber on the colors. I mean, the, the action sequences are amazing. My favorite set of sequences is there's this meta woman that's created where McLean takes all the nanotech that he can get and he combines nanotech with catastrophe theory and he creates this meta woman unfortunately as you can imagine it ends up being a, catas- a catastrophe <laughs> because this meta woman while she kicks doom patrol's ass her body sur- soon mutates and she becomes this globulous horrific looking mess this is where chris burnham's art absolutely shines because he's really good at drawing horrific looking things and i mean that in the nicest way <laughs> and it's just gory as hell uh, the Doom Patrol uh, end up ends. They end up winning the day, and and as they win the day, and they flee this town and they escape. They've managed to uh, defeat McLean and his machinations. And while they're fleeing the town, Peacemaker and of course the rest of Amanda Waller's squad are coming in, and it's revealed that McLean, this corporation, this Metagen corporation, is actually being run by Amanda Waller. Again, Amanda Waller has her teeth in virtually every nefarious aspect of the DC universe. Amanda Waller has her teeth in, and I thought this was was really good. I haven't even touched upon some of the dialogue that I really liked, the character moments, the 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 bickerings between crazy Jane and, and Niles Calder and the fact that Niles is sort of redeemed at the end. Uh, crazy Jane comes to trust Niles Calder at the end and Niles Calder talks about how he abandoned catastrophe theory when he, that he, that he's a better man than he used to be. And so at least on the surface, it would appear that Niles Calder is, is saying the right things. And, uh, Crazy Jane herself is uh, maybe slowly going to be beginning to trust him. So I like the character work here. I like the action. I like the pacing. I love the uh, the action. I thought it was very well done. Uh, this was, if it wasn't for a couple of the other comics we read this week, this would have been my book of the week. So what do you think? Yeah, I loved it. Um, perfect, perfect art to suit the tone of the story. Um Again, one of the, my favorite things about what Dennis Culver is doing with Doom Patrol, we've talked about it a lot, how he's pulling from every era and and making them all matter, making them all count. It, Niles Calder is such an interesting character to me. So uh, really reflective of society, right, in the way that he's been written over the years. You know, very, very noble, very wise, you know, leader of the Doom Patrol when he was first introduced, you know, uh, older white guy of course he has the best interest at heart you know you feel bad for him because he's in a wheelchair and what have you and then you start getting into the 80s and uh 90s and there's you know distrust there and you know he he manipulated events he caused the accidents that caused other people to become and then all of a sudden 
he's not this heroic figure that you you know necessarily thought he was. And so that now he's in an interesting place. Do you trust him? Do you not trust him? We get that characterization. You mentioned the bickering and the distrust that, uh, and it's interesting, right? Like Niles Calder known as the chief. And now it's Crazy Jane, one of her personalities, that's the chief that's leading the Doom Patrol. But, you know, here's a Niles Calder that she's allowed to go out in, into the field um, to this town to, to uh, try to take out this Metagen corporation and Metagene corporation. And, you know, do, do you trust him? Is he going to betray them? Like, what's going on? Like, great subtext, right? Great, great foreshadowing from Dennis Culver. And then, yeah, then you get that turn at the end where, okay, maybe – Maybe Niles has learned his lesson. You know, he's admitting that this idea of the chaos theory is is wrong, and we shouldn't have manipulated people and been this kind of you know puppet master, what have you. Um, but this you know McLean character going you know following the same path that Niles Caller took previously, um, doing morally questionable things and, and manipulating people and ruining people's lives. All, all because he wants to get his pot of gold, right? That's, that's all he really cares about. So, yeah, really great character work. You're just wonderful. And despite the fact that Culver knows he only has seven issues, he's taking his time to still tell the story right. Hopefully we get more. But if not, it doesn't mean he's going to rush and try to overstuff the issues. Uh, and I really appreciate that and respect that. Uh, then on the, you know, the other aspect of the story, uh, because Burnham – does a great job with that character work and body language and facial expressions and what have you. But then on, on, you know, up on the street of this town where we have the fight with, uh, between the robotic townspeople and the metagen agents in the town and what have you. And the other members of the doom patrol, uh, negative man, robot man, uh, elastic girl, what have you like that, that, that action is fantastic as well. Uh, like love, love, love the art from Burnham. It's so dynamic. He's got great camera angles. He, he knows what to focus on, and there's a visceralness to his art, like just beautiful. The colors are very primary, which really help sell the book as kind of this you know traditional superhero book. Which, um, despite the weirdness of Doom Patrol, I feel like it's always it's had that you know. Um, if you go back to the earliest Doom Patrol adventure, my greatest adventure, in fact, you know, where it um, debuted more of an adventure or pulp type series. Um, and now it's sort of a hybrid between the two. But the Brian Raber color work is done uh, very, very well also. So, yeah, I mean, I literally I was just smiling the whole time I was reading this. It's just yeah. so good. So much like, fun. I, yeah. yeah, so much fun. Like I echo your sentiment like. And I told this to Dennis, you know, when I spoke to him, and if you all got a chance to listen to my interview that I did with him at San Diego Comic Con, yeah, I do not want this to end. And we know Dennis has a ton more Doom Patrol stories, and I don't want DC. I don't want another six issue or another ten issue. Just give us an ongoing. You know, we we're just talking about it with Harley Quinn earlier, and how you know you mentioned somebody new comes on and you never know what, what take they're going to have on Harley, but that's okay because much like Batman, you can tell any kind of story with Harley. Mm. And I get that. And that's somewhat true. And do patrol. They're a concept that's very elastic as well. You know, you look back on those classic pulp adventure stories in the sixties, you look at, you know, more conspiracy type, more traditional superhero stuff in the eighties to the crazy stuff and did in the nineties and two thousands and what have you. And then even what, Gerard Way did with the young animal imprint. Like you can go in a lot of different directions, but 
Culver clearly gets these characters and he's doing a fantastic job of really taking from all those eras and, and making it work coherently and canonically very, very well. So give him the reins and let him run for two years. Give him 24 issues. Give him a 24 issue ongoing. See how it sells. Uh, we've got the Doom Patrol TV show. I think it would be a good thing to have a you know an ongoing, long run uh, for Doom Patrol. And, you know, maybe you get a, another artist, an artist with a similar style to, to Chris Burnham, and they can alternate arcs, um, which we've seen artists do that before, like, like Otto Schmidt and Juan Ferreira on Green Arrow comes to mind. You know, their art styles are similar. Um, and then you, at least when you do a trade, you know, the art is consistent. But yeah, I would love, love for this to be an ongoing or for this to end and for a Doom Patrol ongoing to start. Uh, with Dennis Culver at the at the reins, so hope you're listening, DC, and uh, keep up the fantastic work, work Dennis. Uh, okay, in addition to those books, we also have DC Ruby number seven is out this week. Uh, also, Batman the Adventure, Batman the Adventures Continue season three, number seven. Otherwise, we talked about all the individual books, and then in terms of collections, we've got. Uh, Detective Comics Volume 5, the Joker Award trade paperback. So that's uh, James Tynan's run um, on Detective. We've got Green Lantern Corps uh, Omnibus Volume 1. So this collects uh, Green Lantern Corps Recharge 1 through 5, Green Lantern Corps 1 through 3, and 7 through 38, Green Lantern 20 through 25, Green Lantern Sinestro Corps Special, and stories from Showcase 95, 7 and 8, Blackest. Uh, Night, Tales of the Core 1 through 3, and Untold Tales of Blackest Night. So Peter J. Tomasi, Dave Gibbons, Jeff Johns, uh, Patrick Gleason. Uh, so that whole Blackest Night era of Green Lantern, that's what you're getting in uh, Green Lantern Core. Uh, a lot of Pete Tomasi and Patrick Gleason work. Uh, there's also uh, Robin and Batman trade paperback. That is the Jeff Lemire written uh, Dustin Wynn drawn uh, three issue series, uh, Black Label, that is basically the origin of Batman and Robin coming together, like how they came together as a team uh, through the, the eyes, through the perspective of Dick Grayson. Very, very good series. Uh, we also have Wildcats Volume 1, which is the first uh, six issues, as well as material from the Wildstorm 30th anniversary special uh, of the uh, Matthew Rosenberg run, the one that's currently coming out right now. Steven Scobia is the artist. And then the last collection that's out this week is Wonder Woman Black and Gold, which collects that limited color palette. I think it was six issues. Um, yeah, six issues. So that's a big book, uh, 272 pages for 25 bucks. So uh, those are the collections that are out this week from DC. All right. Well, we know your, your favorite... Um, Night Terror's book this week, Rocky, Detective Comics. What do you got for your uh, your overall favorite book or your non-Night Terror's favorite? Yeah, I just want to show the uh, – now, my pick of the week for Night Terror's uh, is Detective Comics. Uh, Dan Waters, I thought, did an amazing job. And I absolutely – I don't think pe- people who've been listening to my re- our review – I love The Penguin. Uh, Tom King's yeah. The Penguin. It was by far – it was a huge standout this week. I, I thought it was just absolutely amazing, and I just can't wait to see where it goes. Uh, he's, I'm totally captivated, and uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, what about yourself? 
Yeah, no surprise. I knew you were going to pick the penguin uh, just based on – I mean, I, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but just based yeah. on the review, it's clear that it really uh, really was your favorite. Uh, can you guess mine based on, on my reviews, uh, what I enjoyed the most? Uh, well, you, you, you really like the, the Doom Patrol. Uh, Doom Patrol is my and, book of the week. I was yeah. – yeah. Yeah. It was just so much fun. I continue to be impressed by what Dennis Culver – is doing and yeah. you know like you look at this book and it's not you know groundbreaking there's not some huge momentous event that's gonna you know impact the dc universe going forward forever and ever and you know there's no fundamental changes in any of the, the characters of doom patrol but it's just such subtle character work the art's fantastic it's just so much fun yeah um yeah, this is just this is what comics should be, right? Um, I mean, just look at that cover, Assault on Main Street. Yeah, you got um, <laughs> yeah. Elastigirl, you know, with the giant robot, you know, or what is that? A water tower, and she looks like she's picked up and she's gonna hurl at the crowd. Uh, yeah, just a heck of a lot of fun. So yeah, I had to I had to go with uh, with Doom Patrol. Now, I mean, there's plenty of other books worthy of consideration. I thought about. Um, the uh, the Batman Beyond Neo Gothic that was really great, uh, and the Penguin like you mentioned also really good. Um, so yeah, I had to go with Doom Patrol though, uh, just so so good. Uh, all right, that's gonna do it, everybody. Uh, be sure you guys check out our review of the Cull that Rocky and I did. Uh, it's a very detailed breakdown. If you don't want to be spoiled, um, yeah, go read the book first. It did sell out, if you're not aware. Issue 1 did sell out at the distributor level. Um, there's going to be a second printing of the first issue. It's going to be in comic shops the same day as issue number 2. I think it's September, I want to say September 19th or September 16th, somewhere right around there. I think it's the 16th, actually, now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so be sure to pre-order now. <laughs> pre-order your second printing, number 1. Pre-order all the rest of the issues so you don't miss out because it's an absolutely fantastic series. So, um, and then go check out our review or go check out our review first and see if it interests you enough to go, uh, to go pick up the book. So, uh, other than that, I do have another review that uh, should be out today as well. If you're listening to this, uh, on August 22nd, and that's a, a chat with Philip Kennedy Johnson about his upcoming John Stewart, uh, lantern series, which is just fantastic. Wonderful. What Philip had to say about John Stewart. John's never been my Green Lantern, but um, based on what Philip Kennedy Johnson's doing, I, I, I think it's fair to say I've never been more interested in the character, which is really cool, right? Like we're getting that with uh, Colin and Jackson on Batman Beyond, getting that with Dennis Culver and Doom Patrol, like all these uh, DC characters that have never, you know, been characters I've really been that interested in, but just based on the quality of writing, uh, I'm getting sucked in, so... Uh, be sure and uh, check out that other content, everybody. Don't forget, if you're listening to us audio only, head over to YouTube, do a search for Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Once you're there, comment, subscribe, ring the notification bell so you know when a new comic comes out. Uh, and if you're checking us out on YouTube and you want to listen to some of those other interviews that I mentioned, San Diego interviews and what have you, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the comic source and subscribe. Uh, any last thoughts, Rocky? I uh, know I will, but I will be checking out your interview with the Philip K- Kennedy Johnson. I'm very curious to see uh, see to to hear what he has to say about uh, his Green Lantern because uh, Green Lantern is uh, it's a great it's a great time to be a Green Lantern fan between Jeremy Adams and uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson. That's for sure. 
Yeah, some. I'm 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 almost more excited for the villain group for the threat that John has to take on than than to get John Stewart from Philip Kennedy. But there's there's an the way that I'll just give a little tease here. Uh, something that Philip said: the, the way that he views John Stewart and the aspect of John he wants to lean into or he does lean into in the series aligns with how I see John and. A long time listeners of the podcast may know what I'm talking about because we talked about it a lot when we were uh, covering the Green Lantern um, Jeffrey Thorne run. The way I saw John Stewart as opposed to the way that Jeffrey Thorne saw him. So, anyway, that's going to do it, everybody. We appreciate you listening as always, and we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.